to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal with your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rotten about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It means something. You know, that's my take on it. What's yours? Protonic Reversal! That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is! It is a science thing. It's a science place. It's a scientific fact. They were all up in your face this time. Once again, for the one, the only... Protonic Reversal. Back at it, back at it, and also back at it. Uh, great to be back with you. Uh, was on tour most of the month. That was lovely. That was uh, very, very necessary. Thank you so much for folks that came out to see the Kona Neutron and the Secret Friend shows and talked to me about this show, Protonic Reversal, and expressed their you know, uh, their uh, love for it and that they get something out of it. That's something that I don't take lightly. And it's nice to meet so many of you in person at this time that we don't normally get to do that. Uh, of course, shows are fantastic. It was uh, very life-affirming in a way. But you are not here to hear me talk about that, are you? No, you are not. Uh, you are here to hear the show, which, of course, the name of the show is Conan Neutron's Proton Reversal. I am your host, Conan Neutron. I'm a rock and roll lifer who's toured and recorded for over 22 years, most known for the band Code and Neutron, The Secret Friends. Music is a huge part of my life, and I use the format of this very, very long-running podcast to talk about music with musicians whose work I enjoy and respect. Folks, the may or not be household names, but do something very special. This is episode 307. 307. If this is your first time listening to the show, all the archives are at ProtonCoverso.com and are always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. And if you'd like to support the show and get the episode sooner, you can give $1 a month to Patreon.com slash If you like the show or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, or post a review. All that helps people find the show, and it's just a darn nice thing to do. Uh, pretty pretty stoked for this episode. This is This is... It's been a long time in the making because, of course, uh, uh, Guy Pachotto of Fugazi uh, writes a string, uh, Happy Go Licky, uh, <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite musicians, is is finally being on the show. Being on the show? He's coming on the show. He's going to be talking, whatever. I, I, told, I told you I was going to be terrible at this, man. I, I, I was sitting here being like, I'm out of practice. Here we are. But uh, uh, Guy, welcome to the show, man. This is so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Conan. Nice to see you, and uh, nice to talk to your people out there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I, I realized as I was reading my little spiel that I just started doing that the whole no ads, no sponsors, no kidding thing, other than the smart ass in this of it, uh, is 
kind of a Fugazi sort of deal. Like I, in the age of yeah, constant sponsors and ads and things along those lines, I, I decided long ago that I wanted this show just to stand on its own and uh, not be, not get value or validation through commercial enterprise, but just be a, a true thing. And I realized that saying that aloud, knowing that you were right here. So thank you. <laughs> well good man i mean it's like it's you know you've got your own space now and you don't have to worry about uh someone putting a brand on your forehead so exactly exactly no ads for uh, boner pills or, or something you know pops up or anything along those lines and i think that that's it's interesting to me in two matters and this wasn't originally how i was going to start this but i do think that the the world of creativity has i think even more so just been internalized towards uh, commercialism and towards uh, this melding of creative content like if you, if you talk to like a young person now you know of, well, of course they want to be on an apple commercial like how else are you going to get your music heard or something along those lines right and it's it's it occurs to me just like what an incredibly different landscape it is now as well as what a different landscape it was you know, in the late 80s and early 90s when you guys came around and, and basically were treated like aliens for doing something different, uh, at least yeah, from the outside perspective. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's but it's interesting, though. I think that um, I think one thing that we've always tried to stress is that um, whatever kind of like fundamental, you know, methods of working that we felt were like kind of key to us to be able to do what we wanted to do, the idea was never to be like um, it wasn't like a purity test or like we just came up with it because we thought it you know was uh, righteous in some way. It was always predicated on the idea like how can we work and how can we do what we want to do in a way that we feel you know in control of that we feel comfortable and that we feel like we'll you know extend the life of the band and extend our sense of creativity within the group. So I think a lot of people get it, you know, twisted and mixed up to think like, oh, you know, we were doing this stuff because, you know, we had these, you know, we were trying to create a template of a way to work or whatever. It was really about trying to facilitate our own way of working because we knew like we wanted to be in the driver's seat and we knew that in order for us to feel comfortable making music, we had to feel like it was, you know, it was ours in a really like fundamental way. So... I mean, I know like now, I mean, you know, to be honest, like it wasn't back then the kind of opportunities that bands get sometimes now to be in things like those kind of commercials or whatever were probably not really available to us back then anyway. Right. So I I don't really judge people now for, for you know, when, when the, they make those kind of commercial decisions for themselves or they have an idea of that that's the way they want to make a living or they feel like they're, what they're doing is in service to, but it's, for us, it was never a, the, the band was never a concept of, of a career. The band was never a concept of like this is a way for us to 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 have a uh, you know a professional life. That was never that was never even something anyone thought about like fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, I will say if those opportunities had been available to us, and certainly as the band got bigger, weird opportunities were presented to us. They it did, they weren't attractive to us, and we we still didn't do them. But I I just I just think it's like. Sometimes I feel like we're used as a cudgel to like, you know, pound on people for making different decisions than we did. And 
I don't think that's the way we ever thought. We were never trying to like, you know, set ourselves up as like, you know, um, the moral arbiters of an entire way of working, but we were trying to present like an alternative way to work that we thought was highly functional. And as it, you know, for a band that lasted as long as we did, I think it was highly functional. It was a way to, um, it was a way to work that was, that was for us, fundamentally successful from the very first day, from the very first show, from before the very first record came out, because it was just like, this is a, this is a platform that, that can grow and will never feel like it's something that, uh, you know, we don't feel like we have a bridle around our face and we're being led around, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and it's something that could scale up too. It's something that as the band grew and as you uh, grew creatively, which to me is always the most interesting part of the band, uh, anyway, was was the music, which is hilarious. That I fell into the same trap everyone does and immediately start talking about the ethics and modus op- operation, of course. But it's you've maintained, as I think they call it, scalability. Now you 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 maintain all of the the way that you wanted to operate, and you, you know, showed it was that you a challenge. It. it was a challenge. Certainly, as, as the shows got bigger, the you know, how are we going to maintain the door price? How are we going to maintain the all age access? How are we going to maintain, um, you know, and it was, it was a really, it was oftentimes, uh, it was oftentimes a real challenge. I mean, we played in Kansas city one time in 1993 Mm -hmm. in a a room that was like, you know, for 3000 people. And we show up on the day of the show and there was some kind of, there was like a, there was like a piece of paper taped to the ticket window saying, you know, additional fee for entry. Mm-hmm. So they just, they tacked on like a, some kind of a fee to the ticket because they were like, you know, these dopes are charging $5. We're just going to like, right, yeah. you know, we're just going <laughs> to scrape these assholes for a little bit more money. Yeah. So like we show up there, there's instantly like all this beef. They separate the, the, the all ages aspect of it. They put the younger people up on these like, <sighs> Yeah. seats above the floor. So it was just like the whole night was like this constant battle to try to get these people who were running this big, you know, gigantic arena sized rock room to like respect like the way that we wanted to work. And it was just this endless struggle all night. And we were touring at the time with this massive PA that was uh rat sound, which had grown out of the black flag PA system. Yeah. The, so the, the, it was in the like, truck and whatnot. Right. Yeah. 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 So it was this, we were we were playing with this punishingly loud PA. So we had this really awesome rig traveling with us. And the guy, Dave Ratt, the guy who invented it and designed the whole system was there with us and he was breaking down the gear. And one of these like guys who ran this venue comes up, Hawaiian shirt, got a cigar in his mouth. And Dave was on the phone in a phone booth and the guy's like, get your shit out of my club. And Dave's like, well, we're working on it. We'll get it out in a sec, I'm on the phone. The guy grabs the phone, smashes it, on the wall whoa grabs dave's face and pulls his face into his cigar and burns him under the eye so he's like holding his face to the cigar and like burning his face and then he says get your shit out of my club dave comes and dave lifted i I forgot this part dave had a like a little like camcorder with him that he'd been filming us with um during the tour and he lifted it up and started filming this guy and the guy like gets these security guys they grab the camera from him and they like you know thump him and and you know stomp him and then he comes running out to us and we're outside you know loading our gear into our truck and you know he's like these guys did this thing 
And I'm thinking like we were trying to, we were already in the process of making this movie instrument that we'd made about our group. And yeah. we were trying to collect, we were trying to collect footage. So my whole thought was like, shit, they got our, you know, they have our, our footage inside the camera. So I went running back into the club to get it. And these guys locked the door behind me, pulled me into this office, pull out a gun and put it against my head. And they're like, and they're like, you're going to, cause we, the whole show, we were talking on the stage about, you know, fuck these guys. They put an extra fee on it. They've separated the crowd. Like we were just like, he's like, you're not talking so bold now. Are you like, you know, you fucking wise ass and all this oh shit. Oh my God, dude. And I, it was really crazy. And I was like, can I just get the camcorder back? And it's like smashed open. And he was just pulling the tape apart oh. on the, de- on the desk. And I was just like, fuck. So it's like, Shit like that, you know, it's like, so, you know, there were challenges within the, you know, you'd go into these rooms, they didn't respect your ethic or your idea. And every night you'd have to kind of like break it down to people. And sometimes it was small stuff like, you know, the lighting of the show. We just wanted a very simple white light that never went on and off. It was impossible for people to respect that idea. They just were like, they don't really mean it. I want to use my strobe and my smoke machine and my colored lights and all this stuff. So like every night it was like, we're we're serious. We're just trying to do the show the way we want to do it. So I'm just saying my point is basically that, you know, it was, it was an ongoing, it wasn't just like, you know, we came up with some ideas and it was smooth sailing. It was an ongoing process to try to like explain to the world what we were trying to do and get people just to roll with it, you know, because it was, and it was a struggle, you know, certainly as the shows got bigger, doing that door price was something that was, you know, sometimes we'd have to raise it to $6 or $7. It was always like, you know, ridiculously under market, but it was something that we really wanted to do. We had a real ethic about the accessibility of the show to the maximum amount of people, you know, that was the concept. So, but anyway, that was my point. But just like, you know, we it was um it was something that to the beginning of the band to the end of the band, it was something that we were it was always a work in progress. It was always something and particularly Ian had to deal with a lot of it because he did a lo- the majority of the booking and the managing of the band on that level and he would have to go in to those offices and be on the phone with those promoters and just really have to get into some very intense numbers crunching and discussions and, you know, it was a very it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't always smooth sailing, but it was something that it was it was worth it to us to do because, like I said, it just gave us this feeling of complete uh, creative freedom and a sense of ownership over what we were doing, and that was you know it allowed us to yeah. focus on the things that were really important to us, which was which was like being able to relate to each other inside the group in a way that felt healthy and it and to be able to feel freedom to, to write and make records when and how and, you know, where we wanted. Well, and again, it, it seemed like it, if you, if you spell it out, it doesn't seem like such a radical concept, but the, it, it seemed like there were so few bands doing it that just by nature of it being something that was important to you, people would ascribe all sorts of craziness so you you mentioned instrument like you know i i just i think of the the thing with brendan talking about the uh the person who thought you just lived in like a punk house together and like didn't have any heat and only ate rice or something along those lines like just crazy stuff We're like of course they don't do that what, what are you talking about but also i mean there's two things with that like one is that i think there actually were quite a few bands that were doing almost exactly the same stuff that we were doing but just on a different scale i mean certainly yeah. the idea of all ages shows was very big in the Pacific Northwest yes. because they had, you know, they, you know, and, and I think in a lot of places, uh, 
Um, you know, there was tons of bands that we felt very close to that didn't maybe didn't operate exactly the same, but like you know, the X in Amsterdam, we always felt very well aligned with with the way the the, the way they thought about the things they did, and and certainly. The scene in Olympia had a lot of commonalities with the things that we were doing. So it wasn't like we were the only people out there doing it. But I, I, I mean, certainly in terms of scale, it was it was it was large. But, you know, I've heard a lot of criticism sometimes over the years about the band, like, oh, they created this ethic where people are, you know, this very unambitious idea where, you know, creative workers are not being paid to the scale that they deserve. And they created this kind of idea that that, you know, um, that the art, you know, wasn't being remunerated properly in terms of what the market should bear and stuff like that. And that we created some, you know, right. I've heard these kind of arguments and I just, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding. Of, I mean, one, to doing, say that yeah. we weren't ambitious in a way, I always find that kind of insulting because I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like, oh, because a lot of these people who say these things, it's like, well, you know, I, I just think about, well, well, I think we were hugely ambitious from the beginning of the band. Like our idea was, you know, not in terms of like we want to have, you know, be the biggest band in the country, but the uh, the ambition was we want to be able to be the freest band that we can possibly be. Beholden to no one. Right. And that's just that's that to me is an ambitious ideal, you know? And I think that this idea that I agree 100% that people shouldn't undersell themselves and that people shouldn't think of their art as disposable, but at the same time, I do think that there's room for other ideas and other ethics, like, you know, the idea of having low record prices or low door prices. People really underestimate what that actually means in a kind of very practical sense, particularly for young people who yes. are fans fans of the band. When you, I certainly know that when I was a young person and I'm going to buy an import record that cost more, that, you know, twice as much as a domestic record, you're going to make you know, you're going to agonize about those kind of decisions. So if someone can go to the store and see that our they can buy our record and then someone else's record, that helps everybody, you know? And if someone can come to our show and it doesn't, you know, they're a young person and it's a $5 show, they've never heard of the band, they can take a risk to buy the ticket without it feeling like some kind of, um, you know, like huge risk, you know? So that idea was to open it up to people. And I'm telling you, just from a practical standpoint, it fucking worked for us. So, Absolutely. I mean, so I, I, I just sometimes feel like a lot of these criticisms, they're just based on, on, it's just, it's a, it's just like a, a it, I just, my, my suggestion is just like, let there be multiple ways to do things. Like certainly there were tons and tons of bands that I really, really respect that I think did incredible work that maybe shared, did nothing practically the way that we did it, you know, did it completely different. And they did amazing stuff in that, in that direction. And they came up with their own solutions, you know, and their own concepts. And I think that's great, but I think there's a, there's room for, there's room for multiple ways of doing it. And I also think that, you know, just to stand up for the concept, I just think that, it, the idea was always implicit from the band was to make to be like it was it was an it was an open door policy that was the concept and god knows we had people coming to the show who could have given a fuck about who we were what we sounded like and certainly weren't into the band i mean but when you have a low door price you don't just get the people who like you you get every fucker in town who has a free night and wants to fucking cause some trouble so we had like that the shows were spicy. You know what I mean? It was a mix yeah, of people and it was always a confrontational kind of environment. To me, that's interesting. You know, it's like, 
there's plenty of bands where you go and everyone is just like, you know, into the band and that's what it is. It's all about, you know, that kind of love affair. That was not the situation with what we were doing. We were no. bringing something different. And, and I think that kind of challenge is valuable. Well, and for me, you know, first time I saw you, I was like vaguely, vaguely familiar, but I also worked minimum wage at the record store. Which, to be clear, you know, isn't that much of a minimum wage now. Like, it was, it was not making a lot of money. And living in the Bay Area, which, again, uh, not as expensive as it is now, but there was not a lot of money to put together. So the idea that it would be like, oh, wow, I can go see these guys for, like, the money I have in my wallet, that was that was revolutionary. Like, that was something that, that – and then I would go see the show. And, like, as, as for instance, like, one of the first times I saw you guys, it was with, I think, the X and Thrones. And both that bands. Was a, that's a good bill. That's a good Fuck. bill right there. <laughs> I had my mind kicked in. I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! Who are these bands? I, I'm not familiar. This is fantastic." And to get that level of of uh, groundbreaking art presented to you for its own sake in a venue that uh, I believe that was Maritime Hall, where, where it was not just where you weren't just seen as a commodity to be exploited, right? Oh, these. Let's see what we can get out of these sheep, you know. Uh, it, it was it was amazing. It, it was I had never seen such a thing before, and it, it, it kind of actually made me personally question how that kind of stuff was done. And and I think that a lot of other people have had that same experience. And again, as you mentioned, it's just, it's just another model of doing it. But so since so few at the time did it, uh, I think it just it came across as like, oh wow, what are, what are, what what are they doing? Like, how do they make any money? Like. <laughs> You know, like that's all anyone was concerned with. It's like, well, they seem to have it figured out. So let's just maybe trust that whatever they're doing works for them. Uh, but it was revolutionary. Like that's the only way that I can put it. And it's crazy because, like, again, the rise of of things like Ticketmaster and stuff like that, and 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 things along those lines. Just building an alternative model. I mean, if it wasn't so befuddling <laughs> to the powers that be. You know, it was definitely something they would treat with at best disdain, if not hostility, if they did, if they ever took the time to understand it. And it's kind of yeah. Amazing. But I should I should be clear too that like you know not all promoters were like those people in Kansas. Oh City. sure, we, no. Certainly, we, we had a lot of people in different towns, particularly in you know like the Bay Area, New York City towns, and Los Angeles, places that would traditionally be very hard to do it, where we could find promoters who actually kind of got off on the craziness of it. And like for, you know, they would like, well, let's see if we can find a hall where we can make this actually happen. And they would find, you know, you know, they would find venues where they could pull it off, you right. know, and it was, it really, we were, we were often, you know, more, more often than not, we were hugely assisted by, by fellow travelers who just were kind of supportive of the concept, you know, and they knew that we were going to be respectful and that we were going to do everything we could to keep the, the night on, on the tracks, you know? Well, and yeah, I mean, I think about the times that, you know, like when you guys played Dolores Park in San Francisco, that was an incredible day. It was incredible. Like, like, wow, they're letting this happen. How are they letting this happen? This is awesome. And, you know, uh, that was a really special show when we played with Vic Chesnut and uh, uh, Slater Kinney. That was, yep. yeah, that was a really, um, that was a really, uh, that was a great, great show for us. I, you know, I'm not going to lie, man. It definitely got my wheels turning for stuff that happened later on, you know, and, and it's, I, again, you, you, when you present an idea that before was, you know, not considered possible and you do it and you see that it can be done, you can do it on your own terms and you can do it in a way where it's like, where you don't have to have 
you know, I, I refuse to watch it, but that I, I guess they made a documentary of that Lollapalooza with all of the rap rockers and and whatnot that was just horrific and. And, yeah, and the, I, I actually I actually watched. You mean it's God. the Woodstock, the Woodstock thing? The, the Woodstock, Woodstock yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it is it as bad as I assume it is? I, I assume it's 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 worse. It's exponentially worse than anything you can imagine. It's like a God. it's like a it's like a Boschian nightmare. It's, it's just <laughs> it's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. It's not a very well made uh, documentary, but it doesn't need to be because the yeah. footage is so it's so depressing and so outrageously. And just this kind of like, just like the shirking of responsibility on every level from the bands to the promoters to like, you yeah. know, the only people who are like, seem like even the least bit like, it's like the, the shit workers who are working way, way at the bottom of the totem pole are the people who have the most like moral fiber in the whole situation. Right. It's just <laughs> yeah. absolutely terrible. It's, it's really, yeah. But um, the people that hold no power whatsoever. But yeah, the, yeah. The, but the thing is, I knew that would make me like not just mad, but like crazy. And it's, yeah, so, so I it's can't. It's, it's it's very upsetting. There's there's enough in this world that does that. So I was like, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna give that one a miss, frankly. Yeah. But, but yeah, but the idea that like in, to, to see something, you know, again, like I mentioned, like the Dolores Park show or any other times that I saw you is just like. But the oh. Dolores Park, the Dolores Park thing was like that was a food not bombs event. Food not and, bombs. Yep. And food not bombs. I mean, nationally, those were always extremely creative people who were like making really amazing stuff happen. And that's what they did that day. You know, those, those were great organizers. But it seems like you guys always found, found your people that way, right? Like found, found your, uh, your like-minded individuals. You mentioned fellow travelers. I think that's a good term. And, but we came up in it. I mean, it's not like, you know, the, it's like those people, like, you know, that's the, that was the network, the underground network that was built starting in the early eighties. And, continued for a very very long time you know for for and it had been you know it had been tended to like a garden by a lot of people nationally around the country and you know that was that was i think what was hard i think for a lot of people a lot of musicians when there was suddenly you know the sore on eye of the you know corporate music industry kind of turned onto that scene and that's why it felt so disruptive and so kind of alienating was yeah. that this 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 you know this amount of work and this amount of like uh foundation building was um was really rocked by that i mean but you know as you know the eye turn it's like a lighthouse you know now the eye right. has spun in the other direction and you know the, there's always going to be an underground and it's always going to be an underground that tends to itself and you and it continues to thrive now but it was it was something where we definitely felt like we were part of a uh you know we were part of uh it was you know in dc we were very much a part of a scene inside that city and you know by the time i was in fugazi i'd already been in like four or five bands you know so it's like and i was only 22 when i joined so right. it's like we had, it was something that we were carrying something with us that we had been all of us considering and working for you know, bef even before the band had started. Well, and it, it so occurs to me, and I, I do, you know, I, I realize we could, we, could, we could talk all night about this, but and first of all, I use that same Eye of Sauron analogy all the time because it's perfect, right? <laughs> it's like yeah. the perfect, like, of course, yeah, it's like this, this this great evil, and then it's like, okay, now the great evil is like moving on to something else. And it's, it's I, I've, a lot of people that I've had on this show, um, you know, come from, 
I mean, it, it tends, this is what the show is, right? It's people that, that come from that same world and, and the, Hey, this sucks. We're going to make our own thing attitude. And, and it's, it's just, it occurs to me that I feel like the, it's harder to get those ideas across without people literally seeing it in front of their face anymore. Just because every, there's now different kinds of gatekeepers that, that are around that are trying to monetize stuff that shouldn't be monetized in my personal opinion. And mm-hmm. That's hard, and it's demoralizing. And now it's even worse because, like, oh, social media is, is supposed to be the idea of, like, well, it's it's connection between people. But, yeah, it's, it's connection and celebration of the individual without actually supporting the needs of the individual. And ultimately, the engagement is not uh, – can mean a lot of things, and a lot of times it's, it's conflict engagement and things along those lines. So it's such a different landscape now, but it's, like, a different a – different, a different piece of the soul is being – uh, there's a predator heading for it, and it's it's just hard for me to see like what gets what kinds of stories get told and what doesn't. And that's why it's it was such an incredible anomaly to see you guys as a band just exist, just exist doing your thing, and do it on a level where every new record, which we are going to eventually talk about. It didn't sound like the last record, but it didn't sound like it. You know, it wasn't like you know, here, here's the ska record or whatever. But like, it, it was <laughs> <laughs> like, but it, there was a growth to it. There was, there was, there was things that were meant to challenge the audience that you, you guys pushed in different directions and did different things with, and it showed that you can. There was an implicit trust that the people that were going to be along for the ride for Fugazi would be like, cool, we're along for the ride, and the people that weren't, that's fine. You have those old records. You can listen to those old records. Good for you, you know. And it's it's again, it's just, <laughs> and what I'm talking about is is you guys being artists, right? Be, be, and in like in a, in the uh, like like Cassavetes or something along those lines, like so, something. Uh, there's many analogs to it, but doing so without outwardly having this mindset of, oh no. Are people going to like this or not? And just being like, well, you know, we, we think this is great and we're going to put this forward. And having that uh, courage of your convictions, like a band like the X, who obviously are, are creative uh, kindred spirits or uh, shellac or, or many others later on. But I think that it's, it's it's just remarkable that you were able to do it at all uh, from an outside perspective. And especially when, when you consider how long that you were able to do it. And I just wonder from, from the inside, people only see the results. They don't see the efforts. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I just, I wonder, I mean, were there any dark night of the souls uh, moments during any of that? Or was it just like, no, we're all on this ride. We know we're, we know what we're doing and we're going to see this through. Well, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, there's, there were so many like, um, the band, it's hard to even say how long the band really lasted because it's almost hard to say how exactly when it started, you know, because the, yeah. the the buildup to the band was Ian and Joe playing together for quite a long time before even Brendan started playing with them. Right. And then Brendan played with them for a little while. And then, you know, I started playing with them sort of by the second show, but I didn't start playing guitar with them for another year and a half. So there's it was a really protracted beginning you know like the kind of the so i would say the beginning of the band was actually the most volatile part probably until the band stopped like the i would say the first three years were the most like you didn't know what it was yet necessarily well no i mean it also like 
Ian had toured with Minor Threat. Yeah. And Brendan and I had been in every band together up to that point. But we had and we had played out of town. We played shows with Rights of Spring. We played shows out of town with with the different various bands that we were in. But we had never gone on tour. So when the band started touring almost immediately and like hardcore touring, where we were going out for three month tours at a stretch, taking a month off and then going out for another three months, it was really like, you know, it was it was a trial by fire in the sense that we were learning how to be a band that toured like that but we even didn't even really know what the band was like there were these songs and ian had this idea for it and then almost immediately he had the kind of you know there was that generosity of inviting me into the group but in a way it was like they invited in an unstable element because the group three piece had played a show and had some songs Mm -hmm. and then they added me as like this additional thing and then over time I, I started playing guitar and writing stuff. So it was like going to change. It had to change. So it, it just, I, I feel like the early, the early part of the band is like one chapter. And then there's this kind of, you know, the band just was, took a while to kind of like completely become itself uh, in a way it could have, it could have gone in another direction other things could have happened, but what ended up happening is what, you know, it's just the band that we, that it became was, all four of us became like on a creative equal footing in terms of the writing, in terms of the decision making, and everything became um, balanced. And once that happened, I we were kind of in uh, uh, cruise control because once it was like like that, once we had that the 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 that kind of fundamental balance then it was like everything else became much much easier and we just rolled for a really long time and you know certainly there were problems you know we had moments where we were struggling to articulate ideas to each other or we were struggling to make something good but the the conflicts were always creative conflicts like look how do we push this forward or how do we solve this this problem they were they were never really uh personal problems and they were never practical problems you know it's never like you know do we have the will to do this everyone in the band i think the reason the band worked was we just we all when you're attracted to someone when you meet somebody they have things that are different from you that make them attractive to you but sure. then they have like there has to be some things that are the same that's that are and it, that was the way it was within this group is like we were all quite different from each other but we shared this kind of bedrock work ethic that was like really we we've all prioritized the band like at the top of the hierarchy in our lives we were willing to work um you know there was just there was never a thing like oh do we want to go and do seven months of touring it was just like this is what we're doing you know it's like everybody was on board with that idea it's like we're going to go to as many places on the globe as will have us and if the shows are hard and that no one knows who the hell we are we still want to go and play if it's a one generator town outside of Sao Paulo and Brazil, we want to go and play that show. It's like everybody was on the same page. It's like, we want to go out and have these experiences. We want to go out and play our music and we want to do it in as many places as we can. And then when we come home, we want to try to make time for ourselves to practice like crazy and write as much material and try to learn how to be 
the band that you want to be. You know, it's like, you know, every one of us like had a, had that ambition for ourselves. Like we wanted to try to make good records, you know, and that was a struggle for us. We wanted to try to figure out how to use a studio. We wanted to teach ourselves how to become our own, you know, producers. We wanted to, you know, so there's always these like, uh, these things we were striving for, but there was a sense of that we were all in it together, you know, to do it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting to see that evolution too, because I remember when I, when I first, when you first came to my attention, uh, it it was, it was pretty early on and it was described to me like, Oh yeah, this band is great. There's one guy that just goes nuts. Is, is how it was described to me, which 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 I was like, wow, that sounds awesome, like without knowing anything about it, right? And then, but to me, like when I actually engaged with the music, I was like, oh, well, he's kind of doing like a like a James Brown and uh, uh, what's a uh, Bobby Bird thing, or like uh, <laughs> or Public Enemy, like it, the foil, the foil is what that's called, uh, right? And to the point that early Fugazi to me became something I would use to describe when I would think of a band with a foil or with like, you know, two singers or something along those lines, because it fit in. So uh, it's almost like you, you filled in each other's gaps in certain ways, but it was, you were able to push it even early on to be something a little more than the constituent parts, which to be clear, the constituent parts were great. Uh, and so then it seemed like a natural extension then when you started playing guitar. It's and it seemed because your styles are so different anyway that it became into becoming something like to me I think when I think of Sonic Youth I think of of it's almost like Lee and Thurston's guitars are one guitar mm. yeah and in a good way and uh, and I, there's other guitar duos I can I can say that about as well but the way you guys interacted that are so thoroughly yourselves but then also uniquely your own was very interesting like like for instance with the fact you chose a rickenbacker very different kind of sound very different kind of sound than than ian and i'm not sure if you had we're doing that already in happy go like your bands before but I, i'd be curious as your thought process for those early days for for fitting in adding to that in that way well and you know in dc um hardcore like the early dc hardcore scene there was um there was almost like a contempt for Fender guitars. It was like, <laughs> there was like just, sure. there was a Gibson's with a humbucker, you know, like the classic unbelievable guitar sound like that Lyle had in minor threat with like, oh, yeah. you know, Les Paul through a Marshall or whatever. And then, um, you just, you know, you would, as someone just coming up playing guitar and a little bit younger than a lot of the other people, is like there was just this template for a sound, you know, this kind of very, very powerful, full um, sound. And that was what it was. And then in my first band that I was in, Insurrection, um, that's what I played. I played a Gibson SG. We'd borrow a Marshall or whatever, you know, we just had that, we were in that mold of playing. And um, and it sort of made sense. And then that kind of carried over in for initially into Rights of Spring. But very quickly, I just started to feel that it wasn't my sound. Like I just mm, stopped mm. feeling that for some reason. It just was like uh, the thickness of it, the kind of monolithic nature of it. I just did not feel right to me at a certain point. And I was always, a, you know, I hated going to guitar stores. I hated, um, I just felt this incredible self-consciousness about going in there and like, you know, 
it to me just was like, but I remember going into this store and they had a Rickenbacker and the guy's like, do you want to play it? I was like, no. And I just gave him some money and like $250 <laughs> or whatever it was. And I just took the guitar and I took it home and I had no idea what it would sound like, but I just felt that that was the right guitar, you know? And as someone who grew up really, really loving the Beatles and loving, you know, just seeing the Rickenbacker in my head as like, you know, maximum R&B, whatever, just this idea of the Rickenbacker, it looked beautiful to me and I wanted to try it. But immediately I plugged it into an amp like a Marshall and it just, the screaming, squealing say, feedback yeah. was just <laughs> deafening and uncontrollable. It was like, absolutely not. I just didn't know what to do. I was like, couldn't control it. It sounded insane. Um, so I just stuffed the cavity with a bunch of mattress foam, trying to like contain the feedback, you know, and just yeah. working against the actual quality of the guitar. But, um, and then I tried to learn to play that in, in towards the end of Rites of Spring and then through Happy Go Licky, that was my guitar, this blonde Rickenbacker. Mm -hmm. And that, and even though I was struggling to make it work, I felt something was right. I loved the way it felt. I loved the guitar everything about it except that i wasn't able to like you know harness it very well live but um but it was weird having always played guitars in every band i'd been in then went to join fugazi and i just felt that there was no i just couldn't see an avenue to play it just seemed so complete to me when i started hanging out at the practices it was like ian and joe had worked out a conversation between the bass and the guitar yeah. ian's guitar sound was Again, a Gibson SG played through a Marshall, so it seemed monolithic and huge. I just had no idea of how I would play with that. And I didn't really understand it on a kind of fundamental level. I just didn't. I, it was just very different from the kind of music I'd been making in Happy Go Licky and the other bands. So I just felt like I felt kind of adrift in a way, in many ways, like in my life and in terms of what I was doing. So it was almost like I just kind of was like, well, I'll do this band in a way i just wasn't i had my one foot in and one foot out for kind of a long time and then at some point our sound guy like you know after like about 11 or 12 shows where i was just doing like what you were talking about the flavor flav type foil behavior he was like you need to make a decision about if you're if you're in this or not in it and i thought about it and i was like he's right you know i've got to figure out what i'm doing you know and and I realized a lot of my hangup was that I really wanted to write, you know, and I wanted to play guitar. And it occurred to me that, you know, so I got to actually got together without Ian. It was just me, Joe, and Brendan. And, and Ian suggested, he was like, why don't you three to get together and just see if you can come up with something where you play guitar. And just, and that song was Sophisted Find, which was, uh, Oh, I think cool. the first song that I wrote guitar with, like Brendan and I came up with the parts and um, and and that guitar, I, it worked, you know, it worked with Joe and then Ian came in and, and figured out a way to play with it. And suddenly it was like, oh, okay, these tones are so different. There's a way for the Rick to kind of cut through this, you know, there's enough. Yeah. There's enough, there's enough kind of like uh, EQ real estate to be occupied up here, you know, and then, then it was kind of off to the races in a way, because it was like, I, I just felt like, okay, this is, this is the way in. And then I got a different Rickenbacker with a different pickup, this black one. And that was, then I, it's like, that's when I cracked the code of how to play with that kind of guitar through that kind of volume live. And and the the final kind of like uh 
this is maybe a bit in the weeds, but for me, the final piece that made it work was to get uh, just an MXR distortion box, which whenever I would play single note material that wasn't just chords, I would use the sustain and the um, volume boost of the pedal to kick that up and create this like almost perfect uh, sustain through the through the amp. And it would be able to like match the, you know, the huge sonic presence of Ian's guitar. So that's the way that was the key for me to figure out how to do it live, to get the to get it in balance, you know, so that the, the guitars could like be conversational with each other, but also be distinct from each other in a way that was like that would work. Well, yeah. And, and that's something where it, it, it's a it requires time and effort to figure that out and you're not necessarily going to get it immediately. And that, there really wasn't much of a precedent for it uh, that, that, that I can think of, or, or let's put it this way, that I knew of at the time for sure. Like it kind of, as, as someone who at the time that I became familiar with, it was just learning guitar myself. I was like, wow, these guys like play, play guitar totally different. Yet it becomes like something else together. Like I was fascinated by it. And one of the reasons why is because all the, the hard work that you that you put in there to like make this be able to work uh and be but it's also like we're just, we're just very different like ian's musicality and my musicality are really really different like he comes yeah. from he played started from playing piano and bass and he has a really i've noticed this with people who play piano they have a uh they almost have this like foundation of understanding how notes sit in relation to each other yeah. and 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 a, and a certain kind of pitch and a certain kind of um, harmonic vocabulary. I have none of that. I do not <laughs> have. I I have a piano at my house and I can go up there and kind of noodle around with it. It yeah. makes no sense to me. Like I don't <laughs> think I don't think linearly about. Yeah notes i don't think in terms of scales i don't think in terms of i mean i've been accused of having no sense of pitch and i think it's could well be fair because it's like i feel like i have an, an alternate sense of pitch or a, like a and i think so for in so i think in that way it actually made for a good pairing because it's like if we were both from that same mindset i'm not sure how interesting it would necessarily be but i just feel like it's like we can complicate each other. You know what I mean? It's right. like a complication. <laughs> no, totally. But like, like in a, in a cool way that it, you know, it's, you're having a conversation that maybe leads to unexpected places. Right. And that's, uh, it's, it's a and it also, I have to say like Brendan and Joe also like Brendan is an incredible bass player, incredible, He's incredible guitar, guitar player. player. Yeah, absolutely. He's really, yeah. really good. And, <laughs> and a lot of the material that we worked on, Brendan and I would write together a lot of the time. We had done that in our previous bands and we continued to do that in Fugazi where we would like get together and play guitars together. And he, he taught me so much stuff and, and, but I can't play like him either. So it's like every, and Joe, like everyone would write bass lines and Joe would, so there was this kind of like mutual, everybody writing stuff for everybody else within the band. And, and then, and then, uh, and then when they execute it within their own voice, it becomes this other thing. So that was another part of the of the kind of whatever the weave of what we were doing. Well, and it's it's interesting too because I think a lot of times when people think of the classic two guitar bands, they're they're thinking, oh, it's going to sound like ACDC or something along those lines, like they're, they're, or or like the Stones or whatever. And and there's nothing wrong with any of that. I love, I love all those bands, but 
the idea of there being like you know more, more I guess you call them counterpoints or again just coming at things from like a wildly different musical perspective um, allowed some for some for some things that you guys did that now I think people think of and they can identify that as like oh that's like that thing but at the time I mean I'd never heard anything like it and it was great that's exciting that's what you want that's what you want out of music you want something like it's not like oh yeah I've heard that before it's like no I've never heard that before what is that that's crazy and uh that's cool yeah and like I sorry that wasn't a question that's more of a statement (laughs) (laughs) but like I think about like and you don't do do you mind kind of talking a little bit about some of the records too just just i mean sure. I, know, I, I know um some some folks are more into that than others but i think that um like okay for instance like so let's, let's start with the first one like with the glue man right mm-hmm. so for me not only is that song exist as like a very unique special kind of song that i had heard heard at all at the time and still holds up but i also think of like to me the the iggy walking on people's hands uh, you know, in the in, in Detroit, that outside thing, it's the the gee in the basketball hoop is like up there, and, and the same thing. Like, holy crap! Like that's that's crazy. Music can be like that. Oh my god! Uh, but the level of passion that you brought into that, I mean, it, it's it's something that like it seemed unhinged almost like in a good way like not not in a way that was like chaotic, but just just I had not. Well, that song. That. I mean, that song. We didn't. We didn't. Like the way we structured our shows was we never use a set list. I think every you know people who know about the band know that yeah, about yeah, us. Yeah. We would just learn all our material before we went on tour and then we would play. But Glue Man was not a song that was something that we just rotated into the, you know, it wasn't something that someone was going to pull out. We always, it was always reserved for um, nights where we were trying to get to a different plane or this, this something had to there had to be some significance for the way that we were feeling for us to to play that and we always would play it last because it was like it was just um where do you go after so that? It, <laughs> it was a it was a different it was it, it it functioned differently i think one time like perversely said why don't we try playing it first at a show and see if that could work and yeah. it was <laughs> it did it definitely did not work because it was like where do you where do you where do you go from there you know it's like you kind of there's no place to go but yeah. Um, Everything after is going to be kind it, of a letdown somehow. Yeah. So like, so whenever we were like, okay, we're going to do this. It was like, everyone in the group was like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to try to lay it out there, you know? And that was, you know, sometimes it worked better than others, but, and sometimes it didn't, but I mean, for me, it always worked because there's something about the Ian's guitar part, the way the bass and the drums work. I mean, it just, the, the sonic uh, kind of like, you know, hurricane of it or whatever was, was transportive to me. And it was, you know, it always, it always worked for me. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's, I, I can only imagine, <laughs> like, what, yeah, what do you do after that? Well, I don't know, go home. I'm like, it's, it's, it's like there's, you're going to have to build it back up from scratch practically after, after the, the bomb right. goes off. <laughs> uh, but I mean, again, that's something that, uh, with the not doing a set list, not doing prepared material, like it, it, to me, it, it seems like that would be potentially a challenge. Where yeah, you know, you're going to try things in different places, not always going to work, and, and then yeah, you, you oh, got to totally. figure that out. Yeah, I mean, it, for sure. And you would have to. It was a very, um, but you know, we got we got pretty good at it because I think we learned. Um, 
just through the trial and error of these, you know, of all the touring was like how you know, it was almost it was the weird thing about it was like no matter like we had you know whatever a hundred plus songs to know yeah. sometimes you would almost just have a sense of what was coming because it just you know and it would feel it would just it felt like we kind of i don't know i was rare that i would get totally shocked by the the next decision that was being made on stage you know it was like yeah. never um but, you know, we had a we had a basic template, which was that we were alternating vocals and we knew that Joe was going to sing at some point. So we were always had these, you know, we knew that there were some songs that had one guitar, some had two. So there was all these different like things that you're kind of uh, aware of in your head while you're making the decision of what the next piece is going to be. But the the real fun of it was like trying to make sure that everyone in the band knew because we like to bang them out Ramon style. You know, we wanted to be able to like jam the songs together. So you wanted to try to find yeah. some way to get everyone on the same page before you'd go into something. And but that's what lent to us being able to stretch the songs out in a more kind of improvisational way to like create like segues and um, space within the music to kind of uh, to kind of cover for the you know, the mechanics of everything. And that ended up being something that was, was uh, almost unintentional. We kind of like stumbled into this other way of, of kind of, it's interesting because I was thinking about that, you know, so I was having, I sometimes have this conversation with people about improvisation and, you know, anytime you play any song, no matter if it's written or not, it's always an improvisation. It's going to be a little it's, bit it's, different. It's, yeah. It's, it's never going to be, it's not like you were robots. So it's like, there's going to be uh there's always going to be an interpretive kind of quality to anything that you perform at any time. So once you understand that and once you accept it and you're not trying to recreate something necessarily, then suddenly there's freedom within all song, you know, and that's what it yeah. was for us. It's like suddenly the songs were just like it was like it was it was really free within the song. And you knew that no one in the band was going to be like, what the fuck? Like, why the <laughs> hell didn't you go into that? Everybody was on and, and you know, everyone was invested in in trying to follow where it was going, you know? Yeah. And, and it's. You know, and I, I can remember a time I saw you uh, in Chicago. Uh, it was like, I think it was the Congress Theater, if I remember correctly. That's um, and you know the fir the first of those shows. I don't remember exactly what happened, but the I think uh, your your Marshall cab like kind of fell, and like the amp kind of took a took a took a tumble, and I was like, oh my god! Like I was I was like I was like, oh my god, what happened? And then I. You guys just pivoted into like one of the you know like margin walkers <laughs> along those like you just pivoted into like one of the early songs where you just sing while everything was sorted and it just occurred to me I'm like wow how awesome that they have that in their back pocket to be able to do that while like the pit crew you know re right. re replaces the, the like it blew my mind because that as you know, speaking personally I had had a really it was my first time in Chicago and my band had played and the show did not go well. And let's just say it was not as effective. So it was, it was inspirational to me to see you guys deal with adversity in that way. And just sort of, obviously there's, there's a moment or two where you're like, what is happening right now? But you know, you, 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 but you also, I think the thing to do like with stuff like that, like one thing is like, you know, to be nimble and try to find ways around it. But man, God knows we play plenty of shows where, you know, the whole PA goes out or, <laughs> right, you know, exactly. yeah, or like, yeah, yeah. you know, we're playing in a, we're playing in a squatted fort in Rome in this like dungeon underneath the earth. And then suddenly all the lights went out and we were in like, not just the dark, but like the darkest dark, <laughs> like, like, like Dracula like, dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like in the center of the earth dark where you're like, and you know, but those are the greatest moments 
Those yeah. are not the moments where you're like, shit, our show has gone to hell. Those are when you're like, our show has just become memorable in a way that's like really intense. Like that show, the Italians just started bursting out into like singing like folk songs and singing, oh, you know, awesome. it just became this beautiful moment of like, if you're open to accepting that, you know, whatever happens, happens, then suddenly everything is fun and everything is fine. And you can just let it, let it, you know, let it be wherever the fuck it is. Like, God knows. It's like, those are the moments, like I think for a band, those were the moments that we actually lived for was when, when we had to contend with something, you know, it's like, you know, whatever the fuck it is, like playing in Olympia. And then suddenly the, the crowd parts and there's like 15 dudes dressed in Nazi uniforms, like trying to take over the show. (laughs) And it's like, all right, (laughs) this is what's happening now. You know? So it's like, you just, you have to fucking, uh, yeah, just that kind of acceptance of the moment and just be nimble and get into it. Yeah, you you make the the journey itself the destination to a certain degree and just to, to, <laughs> to take that is, it in. That is, ab- I mean, there is, there is no destination. Yeah. The journey is that that's it. So talk, talk to me about the, those early records, the, the self-titled and Margin Walker. Uh, do you have any memories for recording that? Because, again, this is before you're actively – playing guitar in, in in the band and like you're like you mentioned you're trying to kind of feel your place out for it uh how did you feel about the recording process for that do you have any memories of, of any of those uh either yeah of those records i mean we were doing the records um in the original inner ear studios which was a suburban basement in arlington virginia it was just like a small house where Don's family lived and he had a small basement and in the furnished room he had a control room and in the kids playroom was the room you recorded the tracks in so every record that i'd been involved with up to that point had been recorded in that room like righteous spring insurrection did a tape there that never came out uh one last wish happy galicky never properly made a record but if we had it would have been in there um and the first fugazi demo the first fugazi eps and repeater were all recorded in that space and it's, you know, if you could see what it actually was, it's quite remarkable, the sounds he got. I mean, you know, if you listen to, I don't know, you know, the Meyer Threat 7 Inches, you listen to Bad Brains, Black Dots. I mean, the sound that he got in those rooms and the kind of uh, stuff that was recorded there is like, it, it's, you know, it's just really, really kind of incredible. They're great like, sounding my, records. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. really, really <laughs> great sounding records. And, and they all sound different. Like, that was the cool thing about Don was he wasn't really a... Uh, he wasn't one of these kind of like engineers or whatever who had a signature sound. His his signature was just that kind of openness. Like, okay, let's, what do you want to do? And let's try to do that. Like that was his, he really was infectious in that kind of like sense that he was just such a, I mean, he is such a good person to be creative around because he, even when you're a kid and you're feeling kind of intimidated by the process, you don't really know much about it. He just made the whole thing seem kind of effortless and, and, and cool, you know, like when we made the rights of spring record, you know, we had strobe lights going, we, we, you know, we played the entire record as if, you know, live show, we did all, we did the entire record in a day and then we mixed it in a day. It was done, you know, it's yeah. like a two day record. And I can't imagine how we could have made that record without with with a normal engineer or in a normal studio. It just would never, never have been that record. You know, it had to be 
there and it had to be with him. And so my early memories of the early Fugazi stuff was like, this is a place that we all felt comfortable in, that we'd all worked in before. We knew Don really well. Um, Ted Nicely he came in to help us uh, on those records, those early, those first three. And he was somebody that we knew from the record store that we all worked at. And he had been in bands uh, in DC, like the Raz and the Tommy Keen band. And he just was a super dear friend to us. And he was someone who was a bit older and had a little bit more experience and had a really, um, had a really good ear and just had a really good uh, effect on us, I think, like in terms of like, you know, raising our game, you know, a little bit. And uh, so, you know, my memories of doing the early ones, like, since I wasn't playing guitar and stuff like on those, I would just be in the control room a lot of the time and just kind of like trying to pick up on what was happening and going in and singing my songs and just, we were finding something, you know, and it's, we were trying to make an album all, each time and we would end up like the first record. I think we had other songs that we recorded that did, you know, we ended up yeah. shaping the record out of a, a larger tape and the demo, you know, we, it was like, a, it was like we were trying to get to the sound. And so we ended up, I think the first EP was seven of the songs and we like put it together and we tried to find some balance between the two vocals on it. And, you know, I just, those, I, I don't have like any, like, there were no, like, uh, it wasn't like the, the first time that we'd all been in there. So it was, we set up basically the same way we always did. The drummers were in this one part of the room, the guitar would, you know, everything was in the same room with a bunch of stuffed animals and, you know, <laughs> and it was very small. Like the, the ants were all facing in at the drums in a very, very tight, small space. And it was all tracked, the music was all tracked live. And then we would do a few overdubs and some vocals. And that's basically the way they were done. They were done very, very quickly. Um, I don't think we spent more than, you know, four or five days a week till much later. I mean, we were really cranking out those early records, but, you know, the band was re well rehearsed and we had already started playing a lot of shows before we ever had a record out. Um, I mean, I don't think, I think we toured all of Europe and all of the United States before the, the first EP ever even came out. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of wild to think about. Yeah. Did, did you think at the time that uh, Waiting Room would have that level of connection with people? like later on that, that it, like I I did not but I I remember someone uh I remember Mike Fellows who was the bass player in Rights of Spring I remember I was playing him the thing and he's like man that first song dude I was like okay really yeah, I, was like, I just you know to me I <laughs> right, I yeah, didn't yeah. I didn't really know I mean to me I liked I liked all the songs you yeah know? they're I just, all great <laughs> I didn't I didn't really um but but pretty quickly from playing it you could you could feel that people, yeah, people seem to really like it. Yeah. Did your relationship with that song uh, change much as, as time went on as, as people kind of, you know, as the, as the, the bros found it and. No, I, I don't think it, that was it. The thing with us is like, because of the way that we, I mean, we tended to play that song pretty much every night. It wasn't like, it wasn't like mandated that we do that, but we, we generally played it almost every show. I think yeah. it's probably the most, played song that we ended up doing because I mean there's a few nights if we were doing multiple shows in one town where we wouldn't play it every night because we like to do completely different sets each night but um but generally we didn't want people to feel like oh man they're just being dicks and not playing the song that we wanted to hear so we tended to be you know just play the songs but I have to say my relationship to it never changed like I feel like my relationship I mean there's only a few songs I can think of that we ever did where 
we dropped, I think, two or three songs um, over the course of the whole band that we just stopped playing for whatever reason. And and but almost every other song, I always had a feeling of like, uh, yeah, like in, like that I that it, that it was fun to play. And that song was yeah. for me always fun to play. Oh, I mean, sure. all, all I mean, for me, once I was playing guitar, to be able to put the guitar down and just do the songs that uh i was the backup on or just singing the lead without the guitar it ended up being like a really great part of the show for me because it's like i was able to have um you know that freedom or whatever which was it was just nice it was cool and so that song and you know it just was I, the call and response of it is satisfying to me and the the you know it's i mean fucking ian can write a fucking anthem you know he can write a fucking jam and that's that's what that is you know yeah and it's what well, i think it's, it's a, and the reason i bring that up is because it's, it's it occurs to me this it's a rare situation where a band has this uber popular song like maybe popular than the rest of their of their catalog but still there's a vitality and life to it that <laughs> gotta be careful what I say here. That maybe you don't see in some other bands uh, that 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 don't have that same relationship to it. So that's I, I find that fascinating, just as a song, as a song study, really because of it. Because it is a jam. I mean, it it kicks ass, and the fact that you know the football team also likes it, fine. You know, that's not that's not. I a mean, this, all that shit is. I mean, there's so much weird shit. I don't. I quite frankly, I feel like I am the person with the least understanding of what people will or will not like. I think I don't have any clue. You know, I feel like, um, so I, 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 I don't, I, I mean, I think all of the songs were hits to me, you know? So it's like, I don't, I don't quite understand why some more than others, but I also don't have a, I don't have some kind of reactionary stance against that. You know, yeah. I feel like I just find it interesting, you know, to me, it's like, wow, cool. Okay. Like, but, um, and it could be a gateway song for some of the other stuff too, and and it's like not everybody was born. Yeah, but I just don't, too. I just don't think <laughs> that way. You know, I don't think we thought that way. It's All like right. you, I think it's just like we were, we were. The song, I mean, I think you know, certainly as a lyric and as an idea, it was really kind of fundamental about what the band was, was about. The bit that the song is basically about the band. You know, yeah, it's yeah. about like Ian's trying to, you know, because we quite honestly, we had been, all been in groups and we had all had groups, you know, when you're young to keep a group together is, is not easy. Like young people are fucking volatile as hell. When you're trying to make, keep any band together past the two year mark is almost impossible. So, you know, we'd all been worked on bands, put our whole selves into them, had the bands break up, done it again, had that band break up, done it again. So we had been through this cycle. I was only 22, like I said, and I'd already been in a shitload of bands. And some of them hadn't even managed to make records or a tour or do this stuff. So there was this constant sense of, uh, I think we were all um, frustrated. And the song, so the song is almost like it was, ba in a way it's kind of emblematic. And maybe it's good that that was the song that people picked because it really was what, you know, it's basically the the. It was like this is the roadmap forward for this band, and and it touched people too, right? Like people people find find something in it, and again, even the point that like like let's say it's your the boys are back in town or something, right? Because certainly there are other Thin Lizzy songs that I like more, but when Boys Are Back in Town comes on, it's like that's a great song. This this mm -hmm. this song is awesome. I, I'm all for it, and ultimately that I mean that, that should be what matters, and and it's uh. But it's also wild that the the reach that that song has had um, is like oh that hmm, that one huh all right cool 
I mean, from from an outside perspective, it's it's nice that anybody pays any attention to anything at all, I suppose. But uh, no, I, and and I didn't mean to press you on that necessarily, but it's just, it's interesting to me that like how much reach and how much connection that song has had amongst the catalog is is fascinating to me. Hmm. Uh, how about how about repeater? How about repeater? Because this is where, as you as you mentioned, I think you said it was a uh, it was C Fisted Fine was the first one that you kind of came in with the guitar, right? Yep. So that was the first album that I played on uh, with them. I think the first song I played live with them was Reprovisional. Um, oh, nice. Was nice. that was the first song I think where I brought a guitar to the show and played on that song, and then. Yeah, so once we did that record, you know, we did the two tours. I remember we were in England at the end of a, a European tour, and I was kind of like, man, if I don't uh, start playing guitar, I really don't know if I can keep doing this. Because I, I was feeling like, um, I mean, at that tour, I think I was just exhausted. Like when we were recording Margin Walker, we were, it was at the end of a really, really long tour. We were really, really sick. It was winter time in London. We were recording outside of our normal studio. We were trying to make this record and um, and trying to like basically record all the songs that we had up to that point. You know, like that was the idea. Like let's just try to get all of this stuff, you know, down, so we can, you know, then we'll then we can move forward. And um, once again, we didn't complete the mission. We weren't able to complete a record, a full album, but we we ended up with that EP. But then there was a few songs where I figured out a way to play second guitar on them. Songs like Merchandise had yeah. been a song that that had been a one guitar song. Um, there was a there was maybe a few others over the years, like Keep Your Eyes Open, I think, ultimately. That was one of the early songs that we reworked. Furniture, we reworked way, way at the end of the band. But so there was always these kind of like songs that had been part of the early band's like repertoire that we were playing live that never actually ended up getting recorded and then over the years we would kind of pull them out and and arrange them for two guitars and then you know put them into the into the flow of things and so there's a few songs like that on repeater but the majority of it was these songs like turnover repeater blueprint sophistified these were songs that were the two guitar written songs where we kind of found a way to write with these two different uh yeah voices or whatever within the group well and the again this is this is example that record's a great example of just before you guys hit it into like warp seven like after that of just like it's a very different kind of record that than the than the first two eps and you know, you see, you can hear with the title track where like the way things are fitting together, there's growth there. But like, like what if there's the, some of the things you loved about the band are still there, but there's this kind of new, it's like, it's like the crayon box got moved up to a 64 crayon box or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, God, if there's anything, it's like merchandise is, is almost like the Martin Luther putting the note on the door <laughs> level of, of uh, mission statement uh, kind of song that, uh, certainly, certainly caught my attention at the time. Mm. Uh, but the whole record is—I uh, mean, it's—it's—it's. It's, it's, there's there's a depth and range to it. I mean, I think you guys would explore more later. But I, I think it's a very, I think it's a very well recorded portrait of where the band was at the time. That uh, yeah, it's, it's it it kind of just ex- explodes off of the off the speaker, so to speak, and uh, it's it's pretty amazing because it's like you know it's called repeater, but it's like you're doing anything but repeating yourself. And that's a, it was, and that was a kind of like a revolver semi nod, right? If I remember correctly, or did I hear that wrong? 
I guess I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've heard that Ian say that. I, I did. I don't know if I was picked up on that at the time or not, but uh, I mean. I love the connection because yeah. Revolver's like one of the great, greatest records ever made. So that's, yeah, I mean it's pretty <laughs> pretty okay to be compared to that. Which which by the yeah. way, I hope Justin from Songwriting Malpractice hears that because yeah, <laughs> I agree with you, Guy. <laughs> uh, so was it at the time? Was was that like oh those these are the new songs is what we have it's time to record a record? Uh, were, were were there things that didn't make it the cut for that at that time period? That record, no. That record, I think everything that we recorded, we put out. Um, that one was, I think, uh, you know, we all, we had a single which had a few of the other songs. Like we did a single with like song number one and break yeah. in. Break in was the first song that I ever sang with the band. So we did have this that that we wanted to put that out in some form. So we did that seven inch, but those songs felt like you know songs for that seven inch and then the album itself felt was very much recorded as one kind of piece that we knew what it, we knew the shape of it we knew what it was and uh and i think on that record the thing that is i'm most kind of i think was most successful was the sequencing i think and ted yeah. played a big part in this with us that the, the sequencing was done in a very rhythmic on the beat flow way particularly the beginning of the record and i find that really informed the way we made every record you know i mean even before that i think we've always been really sensitive about sequencing but that record i feel it was very particularly i think the sequencing was um was really really well done and we spent a lot of time on it and and we it became a point of emphasis for us uh going forward to to really pay a lot of attention to that aspect of it. And I have to say, like, one of the things that I find now, you know, there's a lot of things about streaming that are positive, I guess. But one thing that I really will never, I just think for musicians that grew up in thinking in terms of sequencing albums mm, yeah. and sides and thinking with that, it's very, very hard for me to think in a different way. And I find myself like a lot of times now when I'm working on things for people and I have to kind of disabuse my, I always feel like I'm bringing in some kind of uh, uh, um, uh, like a scrim on top of it that people aren't, don't think that way anymore, but it's yeah. really hard for me not to. And, and I, and it's one of the things I find really the most enjoyable about the whole process. So, and so I, 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 I kind of miss it as a concept because I think it's uh, I just think it's, it's, it's such a cool aspect of record making. Well, and there's still folks that do appreciate that and do engage with with music that way. Oh, for sure. But, I mean, but obviously, it's definitely, people, gotta... people are still buying vinyl, but right. for, there's no question that people still love albums. But um, you have to. It's a but it was. Ride. I just think it's it's a very it, you know for just a very very long. period. It's like basically like the technology of the book or something. It's like yeah. you know once you have a certain thing, like and then you're working within that technology. It's like for many you know decades, people really thought about albums in a certain way. Yeah. Um, certainly from the mid sixties on there was, it was really quite a, uh, quite a way of, it was like a, a template for the, for, for, and it was such an, I mean, it's just such a genius, uh, there's just so many aspects of it that are so satisfying, you know? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And, well, yeah. and it's funny you mentioned that as an example, because for me, uh, I love to read. I, I, I can't do e-readers. Like it's gotta be an actual book for me. I don't know why. I don't, I have no idea why. But no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm the same. Well, there you go. We are. We are so there you go. We can be. We can be book bros. 
Yeah, but bros, <laughs> meet you at the library. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, it's, but Repeater is, I mean, that's a hell of a the sequel. I mean, it, 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 I don't think it sounds like it, but it reminds me of like Solid Gold by Gang of Four or something. Like the way it all kind of like fits together and it kind of builds mm. on each other. And yeah, it, it is kind of a bummer for things to make a single delivery system now uh, sometimes when, because I think you get a different experience that way. But I mean, the songs do work on their own as well. Uh, right. Did you have any, anything uh, from the recording process of that, that that you can recall? Again, it was done in the same way, except we just added another amp, you know, to the room. Uh, so it was less like uh, sure, yeah. the floor of, and, you know, really it was the way, even when the in rear moved to the bigger room, we always recorded all our records with uh, all of us facing each other and playing at the same time. And uh, that just was, you know, the difference was, in the original Dons, our amps faced each other, the guitar amps, like mm-hmm. Ian's Marshall and my Marshall would just be facing each other and the bass, would be, we'd all be facing in towards the drums, just like we did when we were rehearsing, you know? So that's the way we set up there. Whereas when we did it in the bigger room, we would put the Marshalls back to back and we would be sit- oh, separate, you know? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so separated. Yeah. <laughs> so separating the sound. I mean, as, as, and we just, and then we would put the bass in a, that then the bass would be isolated, but he'd be standing in the room with us. So that was a slightly yeah. different, layout but i mean the original one was just like exactly the way we set up uh when we were you know rehearsing um yeah you know there's like you know aspects to that record you know that we were uh trying to think if there was anything um you know just the song repeater itself like just trying to get the guitar stuff right and the kind of some there were some tricks in terms of like uh in terms of the mix that we were doing i mean i think we put a microphone inside a cookie tin and you know there's like some shit that we would do but um but really it was uh it was it was a pretty fast recording as i recall and once again you know we had ted there with us and i really felt like he did had a lot of uh um input in terms of uh it's it's it really was like the relationship between Don as an engineer, Ted as our producer, and us having been, at that point, really, really well toured. I mean, we, I, you yeah, know, of course. It, took, it took me, it took me a while to learn how to tour or whatever, how to like pace it and just, you know, just learn how to do it. But at that point, I think we had kind of, I think you can, I, when I listen to the record, I just makes me remember like, okay, this is when it started to feel really like, there was a solidity to the to the way we worked together that it it felt it felt you know it felt so the next record like when we did steady diet i think that introduced like a a, 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 that's when we wanted to try to record ourselves and i think that decision created some kind of like lack of confidence in terms of what we were doing and i think um my my main personal memory is just a sense of paranoia about the studio like not understanding the engineering enough to really trust what was happening so i ended up in this kind of you know really ridiculous mindset of like basically being ignorant of the process but being smart enough just to know just to be suspicious so the whole thing i was like is like we we had gotten away from something so even though that that next record i think those songs were songs that we played live and we worked really really hard on I think we we jumped a step there where we thought we were mm. ready to produce ourselves and I don't know that we really were. So we ended up making a record that I actually 
I think we've been maybe probably unfairly harsh on it because I, I don't actually listen to it that much. But then recently I heard some of it and I was actually like, whoa, this actually sounds kind of more interesting than I remembered. Yeah, you know, it's it pretty, had a, it's it has damn a, good. It has, <laughs> yeah, it's got a kind of um, what I liked about it is it just has a it just has a very, very kind of uh, unique fingerprint. You know, it just has yeah. this kind of uh, starkness that's kind of interesting to me now, you know. But I think at the time, I don't I don't know that it was necessarily intentional. You know, I think we were kind of like just trying to find our way forward. And we were also very much not perverse, but almost in a way like we were trying to find a, a, a you know, there's something very, very like large scale or anthemic about the repeater record. And I think we were trying to find a different way out, you know, some other yeah. way forward. And I think that's what that record is in a way. So I think, and it, I, they're, you know, I think they're just, I, I really feel, you know, positive about the songs. And I just think that we needed more time as, it's just like playing or doing anything. It's like you don't instantly know how to make records in the studio necessarily. And I think we just needed more time to, to bake and feel more confident about that aspect of it. Yeah. And it feels very, I mean, it does like, there's almost um austerity is the wrong word, but, but there's definitely like a, like, like it's very direct. It's a very direct record. I, I like that record. I practically wore out my cassette of it. Cassette. <laughs> uh, way, yeah. ba way back when. Um, but it, but it is, funny because i can't think of another record that quite sounds like it it's, it's very unique in that way and it's not anything like repeater like sound wise to the point that i think if people were like less familiar with the band they'd be like is this the same band and then well since you had the cassette i mean our big our, our big sequencing innovation on that record was to fade a song out in the middle and fade it back in on the second side i, which we did. I love <laughs> which that I don't so know, much yeah i don't know if anyone else has ever done that on any record i mean maybe someone has but i kind of i've never heard it but for us that was we just thought that was awesome so that's something that we did on for people who had the cd they had no idea yeah. Yeah, no idea. Yeah, it made me so happy, and actually, I used to listen to that on my way to uh, my way to work, and I would always get stoked about it whenever, whenever I would hear that part. I yeah, also, and if you had a, one of those cassette decks that automatically switches the side, you know, then right. it would have this. <laughs> it was it was cool. I was I was just in there with my Walkman, but uh, yeah, that if you have like what what is auto return? I forget what they call. Anyway, mm -hmm. whatever. But the uh, also oh also like long division into Runaway Return. That's one of my favorite transitions in uh, mm -hmm. in rock. I think that that's a you know that that was a did that come from playing live or was that just an idea yeah that's that's kind of a i mean the the way that uh runaway return begins i mean it was it makes for you can have a musical really nice musical segue like it's like there's there's a beat there a rhythm between the two the way that they line up that works really yeah. well so yeah that was something that we would do live sometimes yeah for sure well and it's 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 so great because it's like those are two very different kind of fugazi songs but they like are just inexorably like linked together in that way and 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 you, you somebody that was like coming at the music from an outside perspective may not think of them being linked but it just it works very well uh as, cool. again as sequencing right um uh, latin roots that song what what's what's i i have my theories what's what's what do you what would you say that one is about to you if you don't mind if what is that one about to me yeah um like, where are you coming at with that one? Like, again, everyone gets to have their own crossword puzzle. Well, right, but... where do you think I'm coming at with it from it? Uh, Let me hear your... Sure. Well, to me, it always kind of seemed like a... Almost like an allegory. Uh, and an allegory of sort of young people finding themselves 
and you know maybe like having like some details that are maybe less important than the sum totality of it just coming from that perspective well it's like the the song is basically like two kids having sex in their parents on the one of the kids parents bed right and right. then they're like they're like so, you know, like, you know, when you, you, you go out with someone and you start talking about your family history and your family, you know, your origins and, you know, where you come from. And so the song was kind of this, it was like thinking, talking about like, you know, that, um, the way, like, there's this generational legacy mm -hmm. that you're kind of like both blessed and also cursed with and, how it uh how it manifests itself um in you regardless of yourself and then how that manifests in relationships and stuff like that so that was basically i don't know i guess that's what the song is about to me well and i think it's i think it's evocative in the fact that it's it's, it's explicitly you know it's not explicitly about much but it's kind of like has that uh the, the vibe of almost like being discovered or something right like by by mom and dad i mean like what is it the father's footsteps or mother's shoes if i remember correctly yeah yeah uh, and there's just not a lot of songs that do that so that that song was always very uh unique and interesting uh to me because of that but mm. uh and then yeah i think because i think there's ones that are more explicit like you know dear justice letter that's pretty straightforward right i mean it's it's kind of yeah, Dear Justice Letter was like, what I was doing in that song was I was trying to write, um, like a lot of those lines of the lyrics of that are actually blues lyrics. Like, you know, Last Fair Guild going down is like Robert Johnson. There's like a yeah. Jimmy Reed line in there. So it was like, I was trying to write like a a blues, political blues song, basically, about right. this situation that I found so um, disturbing. And which I find... I would say maybe exponentially, infinitesimally more disturbing now. Oh, God, um, in this, <laughs> so um, this idea, this, I mean, I, you know, without going too off, too off base, like there needs to be a complete and fundamental restructuring of the way the government in this country is set up. But there's, even at that point, I was well aware that there was something extremely anti-democratic about the way the Supreme Court functioned. And it's only become more and more evident as the years have gone on how how much that's the case and and now we're in this situation where you know this idea that originalism is something that is like sensical to people is so like i've often thought like in the last you know couple of years like how much i really really wish that i'd had some capacity to bifurcate and go to law school and like when i was younger and somehow like snuff that out in the crib somehow because the originalism idea that is like running the fucking uh, legal show in this country is is such an absurdity that it it's it's just it's infuriating and it's just so ridiculous that the idea that we're supposed to somehow you know that the founding fathers are these ventriloquist dummies or these puppets that are supposed to be speaking from their experience to something that's going to have something to do with what the fuck we're doing now it's right. just insane it's centuries just insane earlier yeah exactly yeah it's just it's an absolute <laughs> and it's just it's just it's, it's obviously uh it's just uh, a fig leaf over this kind of um just judicial fucking beatdown that we're all getting anyway um but that was you know that song to me was like a way to try to write um my uh, a lot of the times when i was trying to write in the band i maybe successfully maybe not successfully because i sometimes i think people find some of the songs like 
hard to parse or whatever was I was just trying to find ways to write about things that I found interesting and compelling or things that I had an opinion about, but try to write about them with like the, com the same kind of complexity that I thought about them in my own head. So I wasn't, I was trying to write, find different ways to attack topics mm. lyrically in a way that felt that I could like relate to or that I could feel comfortable with that wasn't doctrinaire or wasn't like, you know, you know, I just wanted to find a language that matched the way I think about things, which is, I mean, as I think most lyricists do, you know, so, um, and I, I tend to be like, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I just try to come at, at things from angles that were satisfying to me. So that like Dear Justice Letter for, you know, I, I think the song is to me self-evident or whatever, but within the song, I wanted there to be other stuff that I thought was interesting. And then that there was like the structure for me was like trying to write using these, you know, these like, um, these, these blues things, yeah. but talking about a different kind of blues, not just like my baby right. left me or, <laughs> yeah. you know, my truck um, broke down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my whatever. <laughs> but, but, but about this other thing, which was like, you know, we're fucked by this, yeah. by this sis, this, this like, you know, judicial system set up and then try to, you know, and it was basically just kind of a, a way of saying like, you know, how, you know, cause it was, at the, it's so funny because at that time, there was a lot of fear that Roe versus Wade was imperiled, you know, yeah, and it was, it felt yeah. very, very visceral at that time. Yeah. And it was a long fuse burning, but now we're in the situation where it has finally happened. And it, it is, it is, you know, it's funny. There's like, I think there's, there's sometimes a very short political memory in this country. Like mm. I think like certainly the Trump thing, I think for a lot of people, they're just like Trump, you know, with reason people think that it was the, you know, this, but it, there's been a very long story happening for, you know, oh, yeah. in my in my adult life that's been unfolding at this kind of regular pace. And you don't it's I think what happens is you almost have this like kind of there's almost a fatigue that sets in. You're like, you know, you've been smacked across the face with Abu Ghraib and then you're smacked across the face with, you know, the next fucking horror. And at a certain point, it's like they just stack up to to a level and then you're constantly the outrage just keeps getting refreshed and you lose the thread. But, you know, it's interesting some, to have like, you know, to be able to look back at some of these songs and realize like, you know, like particularly a song like Dear Justice Letter where you feel like Jesus Christ, you know, it's like, what Still is, relevant. What, you know, <laughs> these, this unfolding. Yeah. yeah this, well, not just relevant. Yeah. But just this kind of um, these echoes, you know, and the, and these decades of projects, you know, that, that, that have been, yeah, it's not there by accident. You know, and it's uh, yeah. I, mean, I think we could get a whole separate podcast just about that. But it's you know, yeah. We, Sorry, we, I didn't mean to. No, no. It's yeah. it's look. It'd be disingenuous not to talk about it. So I mean, that's and you know the fact that we live in a frame based world now, like that didn't appear out of nowhere overnight. You know, it's, it's uh, no. It's rough, and it's a world we live in, and we can sit there and, and talk about art all day. It doesn't stop us from living in this world where people's rights are being taken away, you know, in the, in the name of, uh, <laughs> the name of cruelty is what it seems like sometimes. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's, again, it would be disingenuous not to address it. Uh, 
How about nice new outfit? Well, before we leave this record, I think that's a that's an interesting song. Uh, you know, I think you you cut a, a pretty um... well. That was written during the that was well. That record was recorded um, and was right around the first Gulf War. So, yeah. um, we had, and it was you know I don't know. There's some footage I think people can see of when we right uh, the I think uh, maybe a month before the the first bombs fell on Iraq. Yeah. You know, we did this protest show in front of the White House in the in January. Um, and, you know, for us, it was it was a really, really fraught time. And I remember that extended into the recording session where this this feeling of political depression was like pretty intense, where just was, you know, we had had like, you know, the invasion of Granada and Panama and some of these like small uh, things. But this was the first like full scale America, like, you know, militaristic adventure since Vietnam on that scale. And it was very, very, very frightening at the time and really, really disturbing to see the way um, the way the war was propagandized in the media and the way the war was broadcast at home. And um, a lot of what this, that song in particular was about was this kind of glorification of American uh, weapons technology, this idea that there was a certain kind of um pinpoint elegance to the you know the targeting of the bombs that they could they literally have they literally were saying things like we can pinpoint a chimney and drop a bomb down the length of the chimney into this munitions factory and isn't that great yeah (laughs) and you know the the what they were trying to sell was that there was no human cost to this because it was being done in some kind of incredibly clinical and you know precise way which as it turns out once the 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 real accounting of the war was done was obviously complete and total bullshit and that there was like civilian casualties well beyond anything they ever said and that the the war like all wars is a shit show you know, the idea that that humans can like somehow go into these mechanized wars and have things being done in any kind of like, um, you know, that there's some kind of precision or, you know. Uh, oh, it's clean. Oh, is it really? Yeah. The, yeah. yeah, yeah the, the, the war is just a fucking hellscape that creates like untold effects that are just, you know, environmental effects, human effects, like all of this stuff. So the song was basically just like. You know, the nice new outfit was to me was just about the the way they were dressing up and propagandizing and merchandising and commercializing and selling this military adventure. So that's that's what that song is about. Which they still do. And it's still Which works. they still do, yeah. And yeah, that's oh boy. <laughs> but it's something that I think it's something governments like, you know, certainly we're seeing this in Russia and Ukraine now. There's this kind of like um There's this myopia, this idea that that somehow these the next adventure is going to be, you know, they've got it all sorted or they figured it out and they're just, you know, it's going to be this, you know, it's just like this. It's just so repetitive, the kind of stupidity of these of these things and the, the cost of it and like who is benefiting from this, you know, and at the time, I just remember really, I think it was um it really, really had a profound effect on people. And I think also because there really was quite a large um, 
anti-war protests and stuff that were just not being reflect. This was, you know, obviously pre-social media. So there was this. They just wouldn't sense, report it. Yeah. They no, just they, wouldn't do it. So there were these huge demonstrations in Washington that just were not getting any kind of coverage. And so there was this sense of like feeling like, oh my God, you know, like we're not even, this reality is not even being reflected correctly or like, you know, honestly. And it was just, it was just a very, very frightening time. And I think it was, you know, I think that even at that stage, you know, obviously what ended up happening with the next George Bush was like, you know, exponentially even worse than that. But it was like, it was an inkling of where the world was heading and what the shape of what was to come. And I think it really was, it weighed on us, you know, so I think it weighed on a lot of people in the country psychologically. And, and I, so when I listen to that record, I definitely can, it brings me very much back in touch with that feeling at that time, this kind of sense of a little bit of helplessness of watching this thing unfold and, you know, in real time. It was just, you know, and then watching, just watching, you know, I can just, you know, you just saw the, the flares in the night sky going into, you know, you know, Baghdad and then the scuds being shot at Israel and that whole fucking thing that was going on and just like watching it in horror. Like how the fuck is this happening? You know? And for what? And then to have almost the same stuff happen like 10 years later with the next war and, mm-hmm. and, and, and a more different Bush is just, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a anyway. Lot. And yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to take us down that path. I think it's, I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, oh, and then before we move on, um, I think that, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting record, man. I think that that's, I think that Exit Only is, is actually one of my favorite opening songs. Like, I think mm. that, like, but it's a bold opening song, right? Like, it's, it's like, it's, it's like, couldn't be more different than, um, like starting with a, with Waiting Room. And I, but I think it kind of sets the table for what kind of record that is. I think it's underrated, man. I think it's a really, Really cool one. Like I said, it practically wore out the cassette. So cool. Uh, Kill Taker is, is is what's up next. Yep, that was one. Um, uh, we we I think you did that. You did, you, you, you recorded I, some demos with Steve first, right? And that was that the one, or is that the one after that? I'm trying to remember. Uh, no, it's this one. And we we actually did a demo. We did a demo of instrument and uh, rend it at inner ear like we went in and recorded them they're actually like we were so up our own fucking asses at this point that we did this demo we couldn't tell if it was good or bad in retrospect listening to it i think those two might be better than the ones that are on the actual album but we didn't we didn't know yet it was interesting because instrument when we first recorded it for the the first demo that we did at inner ear it was not the song that it became. It was basically the guitars played full bore through the whole song. There was no d- dynamics to it. Oh, there was sure. nothing yeah. happening. It was just this kind of, and I think we played it live that way a few times. It was just this monolithic wall of noise. And we just were like, fuck, well, what the hell is this song? And then I just went, went in and I started hitting the mute buttons on the on the desk and started carving out space out of the part. And suddenly the bass stepped forward and the drum stepped forward. And we are like, oh, okay. So it was actually a song that was arranged in the studio by using mute buttons. And then we realized what this, <laughs> That's it was awesome. like, it was like, it was like carving a, it was like carving away something and seeing what the was inside the marble or something like that. It was like, we sure. had this marble of fucking guitar noise and we carved it away and there was a different song inside. And, yes, it's too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, it's better without so, something. So, yeah. 
So we had that demo, and then we were like, we had met Steve. Like, I think what happened was we were playing in London, and and that band, The Digits, were opening for us, who were like one of the fucking greatest oh, yeah. American punk bands. I'm a fan. I mean, they were just, I don't Rick, know. Rick Sims is rock and roll. <laughs> that oh, my guy, God. That guy's they were the drummer, the, all those guys, yeah, all the bass them. player. They were just like fucking monsters, and I don't think they get the – you know, people should really go check out those records, but live they were just ridiculous. And so they were opening for us in London and Steve had come over to do their sound. I don't think he'd ever seen us at that point. And he, and after the show, he came up and he was like super friendly and effusive and, you know, had basically extended an offer to us to record with him at some point. And I think we were just at the point where we were like, okay, we tried this experiment of recording ourselves and, maybe we should try something totally different. And we, you know, we were curious to get to know Steve and hang out with him and do this thing. So we went up, drove up, we didn't have any plan to make an album necessarily, but um, we just had a really good time at his place. And we ended up recording most, I think the entire record as as much as I, I think we did the entire record. I, I, I'm pretty sure, but just like four days, you know, we banged it out, hung out with him, made food, watched movies, you know, played dice, whatever the fuck we would do and became incredibly good friends. And it was a friendship that extended, you know, you know, ended up playing many, many shows with shellac. And, um, but that was kind of like where the friendship was kind of formed was from that session. But the session itself, I think that, um, I think for me, like, I just felt like I never, I just was, didn't, have a handle on how to sing the songs yet. So I, I, for me, that's where I struggled with the final tape was I just didn't really think that it was, I just didn't sound right to myself after we'd done it. Like, I think that there was a lot of great ideas in it, but it was just like, um, it just, you know, by the time we came home, we were listening to cassettes of it. It was just like, well, this is cool. And we had a really good time, but this doesn't really sound like, what we think we sound like and we're not singing very well it was just kind of an awkward feeling because we felt like we'd fucked up like we didn't yeah we didn't like pull it off or whatever but there wasn't really an intention to make a record there we thought we might make a single we just were going there to have like to experience it you know so i don't know if there maybe there's some kind of idea that we've made this failed tape i don't really think that's what happened i my feeling about it is that we went to try out this experience to see if that's what we wanted to do. And we realized what we wanted to do was make a record at an arrear and continue to work and refining something that we'd already begun, but that we hadn't mastered yet. So I think it was really educational for us. And it had the added bonus of having us get to know Steve and also learn about the way he worked, which just, I mean, I have to say like most fucking, you know, people who are, sensible the goat record is probably one of the greatest sounding records that has ever been recorded you pretty, know pretty goddamn good album. yeah exactly. so <laughs> i think on a certain level we were not gonna you know our band our band you know our, our what we do is different from that but it like for that band for jesus lizard for that record it could not sound better in yeah, any yeah. way so yeah. anyone who fucking recorded that record is it, as far as i'm concerned an engineering genius because it fucking sounds incredible incredible yeah and so it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't us saying like you know that it was on steve it just was like whatever the combination was it didn't work on that day maybe there's a record 
that we could have made together that would have been incredible? I don't know. But that was not the record. And it's just, just one of those things that happened. So we ended up going back in with Ted and recording the way that we had done the previous record in the same room. But this time we had Ted back with us and it went really, really well. Like we just felt comfortable again. It was like, you know, it just felt like, okay, this is, you know, the, the, we're all in, it just felt comfortable. And the, by that point we had recorded the songs a number of times. And right. We'd been so you recording know pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> and we bought an, we, you know, the band had bought an eight track. So we were actually recording, learning to record ourselves on the eight track in our practice space as well. So we'd actually been doing that as well. So we were, by the time we made the record, we kind of, everything was kind of ironed out. So it was much, much easier process to do. I think uh, there's some, it's an interesting record. And I mean, I think, I think public witness is in the upper echelon of Fugazi songs for me as a small punk champion. I think both those songs are, are just fantastic. Uh, and, and, and emblematic of like a certain thing that you guys did that, uh, you know, aside from the rest of the record, which I which I like quite a bit, because I mean, remember this is also the record that has "Sweet and Low" on it, which is great and like a wildly different thing. And to see you guys have that as like a like a tension breaker almost live, too. Mm-hmm. Like that that was that was very interesting to see because it was like, oh wow, that's a way that you know you don't necessarily have to scale up intensity scale like there's some like you mentioned earlier with like taking some of the guitars out and making it a better song right that like oh if you bring it down it actually means more when it comes back up again yeah i mean obviously dynamics were always really important to what the way we thought about music and silence and gaps and space and all of that stuff so um you know it's interesting because in on the categories actually there's you know some of this stuff doesn't have a whole lot of space on it it's pretty raucous but um but there is these pockets where it opens up you know and uh last chance for a slow dance there's a few different songs on there where there's like you know uh and you know the feedback thing at the end of 23 beats off there's all there's 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 i think we were starting to think more in terms of that kind of you know space well and it's it it works well but it's i think it's a maybe one of the most misunderstood records and one it's funny because it's the rumor mill at the time uh for uh, in these hilarious pre-modern internet age was that you guys recorded an entire record and scrapped it right and it's like that's not true at all but like it was it was hilarious that Myth making in a way that I can only put like in you know musical like Art Bell style myth making where it's like oh no they it's so crazy they made a whole record and then they decided never to release it it's like okay that didn't actually happen um, so it's nice to hear the hear the truth be told I think that that's another yeah like what it, it, it's it's a wild record and it's pretty intense but there's a g- bunch of like kind of low key like interesting like cool guitar stuff and the sequencing on that one again kills like that that's something that uh did you put a lot of effort into like uh or labor into figuring out where everything fits together because it's it's a well-sequenced record yeah i mean again i think we took it really seriously i mean i think you know it's starting with facet squared i mean it's like a lot of these things like to us they make they make fugazi sense you know what i mean to us so it's like you know like if someone says like oh that's you know a really left field i don't know it's like i don't don't know if it's good or bad and i uh, to be honest like we just really could give a fuck like that was our approach (laughs) like i mean we just didn't give a fuck like we weren't thinking in terms of 
anything like that. It's like our our thing was just to try to find what we wanted to do and try to find what worked. So I think, you know, um, yeah, and this, like, you know, we were, again, like we were in the driver's seat. So yeah, if we were, you know, sometimes we, I think, you know, one fault of the band was sometimes we were, uh, we overworked stuff. Like sometimes we would, like, you know, for example, on, uh, there's this song called Guilford Fall where we did a mm -hmm. demo at, in the basement of my mom's house and it's on the instrument soundtrack. To me, it sounds unbelievable. Why that's not the album version, I do not know because it, it sounds incredible. But sometimes we just would miss the plot with our own stuff. Like we were yeah. recording all the time. We were recording our practices. We were doing stuff. So sometimes I think we would like, you know, just we would get we'd hypnotize ourselves where we weren't exactly sure whether we were done or not you know so sometimes things got over if anything that had if we were guilty of anything sometimes it was like of just not knowing when we were there yet you know yeah. um but in general we just didn't give a fuck you know it was just like about <laughs> keeping ourselves uh engaged and there was we weren't we weren't thinking that much about how it was going to be taken by people because it just that just wasn't something that we were thinking about you know just wanted to try to make stuff that we thought was was satisfying you know like i think most bands i mean i don't think there's a lot of groups that you know maybe there are but i think you know most of the people they're just trying to they're trying to execute something you know yeah. and find a way forward and that's what that's all we were doing i appreciated the Shout out! Uh, I mean, Woman Under the Influence is one of my favorite movies. So, uh, Casavetes is always mm. a special place in my heart as a as a song and as a, a filmmaker. Did you did you find there was some common cause to like how he chose to engage with his art with it, or was it just an interesting thing to write about? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think that's fair to say. I think that I you know I'd seen. And you know a number of his movies. I mean, in DC we had this thing called the American Film Institute, the AFI, oh, yeah, and they course. would have yeah, yeah, yeah. you know a, a retrospective films. And I saw Husbands there, uh, the Cassavetes movie Husbands, which is really, really a disturbing it's brutal. movie. <laughs> it's and a brutal movie. It's, <laughs> it's a brutal, brutal movie, but that I think really reveals something really real about the way men interact with each other on some kind of level. So I, yeah. I found it really a brave movie, you know, and really interesting. And so I started. Yeah, I found Woman Under the Influence. I just started seeing all of the films and they were all kind of very different from each other. But I really appreciated that he was willing to do what he needed to do in order to make his films on his own terms. So he would like, you know, work as an actor and try to amass some money, but he would shoot all his stuff, you know, on his own in self-finance. And he would work with a team that was his team. And just his, just the kind of... Um, sacrifices he was willing to make in order to make the films that he wanted to make i found very very moving you know and i thought uh he you know he 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 was just a very and to me a very inspiring artist and i thought that uh you know i don't know i don't i can't really remember why it occurred to me to write the song necessarily but i i had written this kind of acoustic a lot of the songs from that era I would write these songs in my bedroom, like I'd record on a four track, and they would have nothing to do with what the song ended up. So I had this song called Young Cassavetes, which was just this acoustic song that has no bearing on on the song that it became. And then I had this other kind of riff that became was the foundational riff for Cassavetes that was on a four track. And then 
for some reason I just would combine the two. That's a lot of the way that I worked was I would just record a bunch of stuff. Um, there's a demo for Rendit on the instrument soundtrack, which is an example of that kind of four-track demo that I would make, where I would just like record something and just have it in the back of my mind. Uh, do you like me? There was a lot of them that were like that. Public yeah. Witness, there was a demo like that. And so then they would just, you know, you just had, you know, it's just like had this raw material you have a, a, a accumulated. And I had accumulated a series of songs that I had written that were kind of like, you know, these people are heroes to me. I'd written one about Steve Marriott. I'd written one about Cassavetes. I just had a, a bunch of those just kind of sitting around. And for whatever reason, um, the lyric kind of just kept gestating and ended up being affixed to this music. And I, I felt, uh, you know, I felt like I, you know, I wanted to tip my hat to the guy. So that's ended up being the song. And I think that, uh, yeah, what it's, it's, I mean, did you, did did he ever hear it? Do you know? It seems like he might be into it. I don't know. Oh, I don't, (laughs) I I think he might've been dead already by that point. I don't think he was with us. I got into his stuff so late. That's actually might be true. I know his his daughter was at one of our shows in L.A. once, and oh, that's um, awesome. oh yeah, he died in eighty nine. Nice. Shit, man! Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I'm on a movie show too. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I I just want to point out. I think Smallpox Champion is one of the most anthemic songs about one of the least likely to be anthemic uh, topics. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's actually I I, I kind of love it. Be, like not just because it's a great song, but because of that. Uh, just before before we move on, smallpox champion, where, where 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 did that one come from? You know, I don't know. I mean, I've been reading a lot about uh, the history of uh, you know the Native American population and um, the. It's a really, you know, it's uh, whatever. I mean, I think uh, it's just a really, really hard and troubling history that's foundational to this country. And I I felt like I had not been really educated on it in a way um, that was appropriate. You know, I just don't feel like most people in this country have a real uh, strong grounding in something that everybody should know. And so, you know, as a as with a lot of things, as you get older, you can kind of educate yourself on things. And I'd been educating myself on that topic. And I wanted to uh, address the idea of like, you know, history, not you can't bury history forever. And that things will, you know, that the that there's the legacies that need to be addressed. And that's what that song meant to me. I had to, it was the Zen book, the People's History of the United States that kind of Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Like that that was where I kind of had my my mind opened a little bit to that and like, oh yeah, <laughs> history is written by the by the winners, of course. Like why would you say something bad about yourself and, you know, so it's you know, that and I think that that's hopefully a lifelong journey, you know, uh finding finding the truth and uh for those that respect justice anyway. But uh yeah, it, it's <laughs> If you stop and think about the lyrical matter and the and the subject matter come from, hell of an anthem for that. But uh, I I love it. Mm. The next one up is Red Medicine. 
and uh, yeah that record to me I, I i feel really that was a record that um there's many aspects of it that i like and one of the things that i i really like about that record was we did a lot of this kind of interstitial stuff on there where yeah. we were pulling like jams from our stuff that we'd recorded on you know boom boxes or four tracks and just started threading some of that stuff into the record which i i liked being able to um Because so much of what I, the way we thought about the band from within it is like, you know, there's all this stuff that's not necessarily released on proper records, like all of this tape recording and all of this practicing and all of this um, thinking about music. And so what I like about that record is it has this kind of like geological shape where you have like, mm. you know, the finished music, you have bits of recordings from, you know, all these different uh, audio uh, qualities and uh, fidelities and stuff like that. So I, I find that record really interesting for that. You know, I, I think we felt much more comfortable as producing ourselves, you know, because we'd been working so much uh, with our A track at home in our practice spaces. And we just, I think that that was the first time where we felt like, okay, we can kind of do whatever the fuck we want now for real. And that's, um, so like you know the beginning of that record is just that a boombox. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's so uh, lo-fi. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a song that we had just fucked around with one day, and it just was like something the it the way it blew out the condensers just sounded so incredible to us. And but it just you know it was not something we would ever have thought to release until we thought to release it. You know? <laughs> so right, 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 right. We're right, just yeah. like you know wow, and then the idea of like finding a perfect like junction point into that song like all of that kind of stuff was um i think we were really influenced a lot by the falls uh nation saving grace record you know which has a lot oh, of that kind yeah. of thing too and i think sure. i feel like that that record was very very uh important record for us i think the the sonic ideas on that record you could you know did you could mine for a lifetime and i think it's just an absolute fucking killer killer album so i think in a way that was definitely something that we were that we were um looking towards and kind of influenced us in a way yeah the only thing i can think of that's like even remotely like it is some of the thinking fellers union records they would they would do some of that kind of stuff or you know yeah and and it's i mean i guess there's that six that's a one six finger satellite record as well well but it's it's interesting because like it all kind of works as sort of like the interstitial bits kind of set up the songs. Like it all kind of works in conjunction. Yeah. I mean, they weren't random, you know what I mean? Like we tried to find ways <laughs> to, to make it the, sure. make, have music, make them have make, them make musical sense, you know, but, but certainly the thing at the beginning was just something that we loved personally. And we thought was like hysterical and perverse to put that at the beginning oh, of the record. The first and then, song. But, then, yeah. <laughs> but then we wanted to have that hard jump cut, which was like, you know, just getting cracked in the face with the start of this. So it's just like, you know, you when we found that, I just, you know, it was just, it was so satisfying, you know, even though, you know, You know, it's just it's just it's one of those things where for us it felt like it felt right. And whether, you know, other people are like, you know, is my you know, is my record player broken or whatever? <laughs> yeah, this is in the know, wrong setting. Like, What's happening? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's it's as the kids say a flex. Uh, to start off the record that way. But I mean I think it kinda sets sets the mood per- perfectly for that record, which is uh absolutely a, a fantastic headphone listen. 
uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, not, not the least of which is to, to to hear that the fidelity the fidelity setup and incongruity sometimes it, it it works it works really well and it's it's a it's very nice. I, I uh, this is uh, that's one of the long distance runner, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, love the the sort of like harmony harmonized like guitars on the end of that. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a. Uh, <laughs> It, to me, it's a very hi-fi in for a record that begins very, uh, very lo-fi, and uh, that's a that's a hell of a song, "Long Distance Runner." Yeah, you know, we started um, we started doing this thing where we would go up to. It's in the you know we'd start in the film instrument. You can if you watch that movie, you can see that we started doing some writing sessions up at this house in Connecticut, which had belonged to Ian's grandparents, and it was just you know rural house in rural Connecticut where we would just kind of bring our lug our eight track up there and start doing demos. And so a lot of that record was um, kind of conceived of up there. And for us, it was a really great way to work where you were just completely separated from your, you know, being at home or being, you know, whatever, you know, domestic concerns you might have just be completely off by ourselves, wake up in the morning, make some food, play all day, record with a track, you know, and so songs like Long Distance Runner, we had like multiple, multiple, multiple iterations and ideas of different ways of doing it and different bass lines and different ways of the guitar going. So it's like we had a real opportunity to try so much stuff up there and just dedicate, you know, complete days. We would just be tracking all day long, you know, and we yeah. it was just, you know, running a track tape for like 10 days. And, and so I, I feel like that was... Um, that record really was born up there in Connecticut. That record, to me, when I listen to it, I think about that those writing sessions and kind of, you know, we in the morning we would wake up, we'd eat, we'd drive into town, go to the batting cages, you know, hit some balls, like, you know, come back, cook some food, play, have some dinner, play into the night, read some books, go to sleep, do it again the next day. It was just, it was just great, you know? And, and there's so much material on those tapes that, we were able to um, pull from for for a long, long time. Well, that's exciting too, because you get to kind of craft a, like your own soundtrack almost, right? <laughs> with 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 the record, and it's it's there's probably things that you maybe wouldn't have tried if you were thinking about in terms of like just songwriting, but it, it seems very free in that way where you well, like version the song version from oh, yeah. Red Medicine that that was tracked up in Guilford. That's that's that is the sound of what we were doing up there. You know, it's like the other stuff was tracked in rear, but uh, most of it. But that song version, that's the sound of the A track. That's the sound of the stuff that we were doing, you know. Yeah, and it's I think it's. Well, like I said, it's a hell, it's a hell of a uh, headphone listen for a lot of reasons. Like just like not just the um, the fidelity changes or whatever, but like it's the, the the way the way it's set up is almost you know it, it's it's a journey. Like and and again, I'm not sure if that gets over in the same way that people listen to music now, which is basically a series of singles. But like it's uh, like there's an ambient kind of sound to it that I don't know. It it, it draws one in as. I don't know, like a David Lynch film or something along those lines, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, but it's there's a deliberateness to it that also has a sort of massive freedom in, yeah. in the feel with it. It's, yeah, that's 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 true. That's what it is for us. 
Okay, end hits. Yeah. I love um, end hits. That's a that's a that's a fantastic. This record, I walked into this is this I don't know if people have this experience anymore, but like what is it? 19 like spring 98. I walked into the record store and I was like, "Oh, there's a new Fugazi record. Cool." <laughs> like, and I didn't know there was anything coming, which is funny because nowadays, you know, it's like there's advanced uh, releases, hype videos, like whatever, etc. And I was yeah. like, "Oh, there's a new Fugazi record. Cool." <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't recall there being any kind of like, you know, I don't know. We never I mean, the thing about the way, you know, I remember doing, you know, people we just we just didn't operate on any kind of like uh, industry clock. You know, there was no we didn't tie the touring to the records and we didn't tie the records to the touring. It was like everything was just like we just worked linearly, which was like we just stepped each thing, one thing after the other. Well, what are we doing now? We're touring. What are we doing now? We're rehearsing. What are we doing now? We're writing. Yeah. What are we doing now? We're making a record. You know, it's like that was just the way that we thought about stuff was just like one foot in the in front of the other kind of thing. And we just um, and once our touring expanded, it would be like, what are we doing? It was either the USA, Europe, the Far East or Latin America. And then can we keep expanding? So it's like once we had all these additional you know, the world it was just like the touring could was infinite. So we would have to the only thing we had to be kind of mindful of was making sure that we, you know, took time to continue to write and rehearse. And um, so and it was like, I think uh, we had just toured the Far East. We'd gone to um, the buildings like uh, from Hong Kong or something. Right. If I remember correctly. Yeah. It's a postcard from Hong Kong. Yeah. And we, you know, I think by that point we'd been to brazil for the first time which had an enormous impact on us um going down to uh chile and brazil and for the first time and just i think that was a very very uh impactful experience for all of us and um so we just i feel like that record to me just is does uh yeah just to continuation of what we were doing and I, I i don't know that record is is it's interesting i feel like there's a certain i mean to me it's like almost like i, I feel like i i look i feel the records like have uh, a space or a color or that one has this kind of color to it to me or this darker space like a richer sonic i think it's about the low end i guess it's like there's something about the way the low end started to be translated in what we were doing that started to thicken and darken or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and that's what I hear from that album. And I felt that that was the advance for us was like, uh, I think we, there were moments in some of the previous records where we just felt like the low end wasn't what we wanted. We wanted, we always, cause live, you know, Joe playing through these ampegs or whatever the oh it rattles the, you you know and, and yeah, the, in a, the deepness yeah. like that that kind of the 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 black velvet black deepness of the bass was something that we wanted more of and I so I feel like on that record is when we start to be more uh, I don't know conscious of trying to achieve that you know and also make I think again pushing that idea of creating more space within the the songs and finding, you know, or taking space away, you know, it's like just being much more conscious about the, that kind of stuff. So I, that's what I think about with that record is just that I feel like there's like a deeper space and then there's a kind of a different color to the 
the what's happening in with the lows and stuff. So I don't know. I well, don't know if that's helpful. No, <laughs> absolutely. Like place position is a good example. Like there's just I mean that there's a heaviness to that, and that like it's just it kind of just <laughs> it's it's it's. It's swampy is the wrong word, but there's like a kind of a like a darker uh, and more low indie feel uh, to a lot of it. The whole record, uh, yeah. but in, but in a good way, like in a, in a way that's like oh wow yeah like like the fact that I mean any anybody who listened for a, for a minute would like know that Joe Lolly's a super champ, but I mean God it's it really comes through on that that record especially yeah. I mean, he's he was, you know, the band in a way, and I've said this before, is like in a way the band is just a baseline, you know, that is what the group, <laughs> the group is kind of a baseline with yeah. a lot of tinsel hanging off it. Um, <laughs> right, with a bunch of ornaments. <laughs> yeah, because, and everyone in the band wrote baselines and everyone yeah. thought in terms of baselines and in terms of the spine of it. And Joe is a very, very, very unique bass player and a very fundamental bass player. Like, um, and uh, there's something about his flow that is just really, really, really unique. You know, even even if the bass line's complicated or uncomplicated, whatever it is, there's a certain kind of flow that he has that's just really, you know, unique to him. So I feel like, uh, yeah, so I feel like on that record, um, there's you can really I mean I, I really all of the records but I just feel like there's something sonically in terms of like the production and the way that we were approaching it that kind of start to bring that more to the fore but um but yeah no I think I think that's fair and I think that comes to as a listener as well um, yeah how about uh, our Pegator? that's I feel like that's a very interesting song in the Fugazi Pantheon I know you have the other version that's on the um the- yeah the other version was like the demo that Brendan and I had done when we wrote the song together and the we've done a few like think closed caption there's a few that brendan and or maybe foreman's dog too where brendan and i had like done these demos for it and you know brendan had this idea of this chord shape that was you know the arpeggiating chord shape and then um we we're just messing around with that and then trying to layer you know this thing on top of it and um and then when the ba- whole band worked on it we kind of expanded the arrangement into this kind of i don't know like it just it has these like you know movements within it or whatever i don't know for us we, we loved instrumentals like we loved writing instrumentals and we loved playing instrumentals and we always had uh uh an idea of, of the instrumental as being an important part of what we did as a band or whatever we really really loved them you know and they were i felt like in the shows like arpeggiator was great you know to it kind of gives us a chance to like um just do something, you know, just subtract the vocals for a second and just have this other thing happen. And so, yeah, that was just a, a, an example of, of, of the, the instrumental for that time for us. Yeah. I mean, you have that great, um, oh God, what's on the EP. Um, why can't I, not, I can't think of the name of that at all right now. Uh, but that, that one's a ripper. I saw you guys play that like uh, once or twice live and I was like, it's like wow, this oh, is number number five. Number maybe? five, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this one shreds. <laughs> like it's great. That's like, where did this one come from? And uh, but then like I think that, but then I also heard Brendan say like, yeah, I wish you wish you would put vocals on it. And made it a song, and I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> some of the, some of them would. I mean, the one thing about the band was we always wrote the music first, and then one of us would would 
you know, tag it as being like, I'm going to try to sing this one. And right. generally we always stuck with whoever kind of grabbed the song first. That person would sing a couple of times. One person would try and then it wouldn't work out. And then the other person would take it. I think Foreman's dog might be one like that. There was a few that were like that, but oh, nice. um, mostly we would just pick a song and then do it. But, but to be honest, like we sometimes wrote ourselves into a corner where it was almost fucking impossible to sing on the song. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like just, just as, as a singer, you can't play against, you can't play guitar well, it was just, and do it. It was yeah. physically impossible. It was just like arpeggiator was kind of like that. It was like, what the who the fuck is going to be able to sing on this ridiculous thing? And then same with number five. It was like, no. So, you know. Right, right. It's too much um, going on. There's no way. Yeah. yeah. And it just, it would feel like, you know, I don't know. Sometimes it just, just, it just physically didn't work. So then we would let that song be. But, um, but you know, it's not like Brendan number one. Those were great songs to open great with tunes, too. Sometimes, yeah. like, because it lets the sound person set up the mix, and you get this. Yeah, I don't know. So there was a there was a reason. There was a thinking behind it. How about a how about place position? I think that that's a that's a good tune on this record. Well, that song for me. I mean, like, I think you know, like, my father's an Italian citizen. He's not American, yeah. and I was. Um, but he was born in the Middle East. He was born in Syria or on the border of Syria and Turkey. And then he lived in Beirut. He had just a, a life where he lived in all these different places. He grew up speaking French. So I think from my, from the beginning, I always felt like, you know, my mother was a, American and, uh, you know, I'd gone to baseball games as a kid. She was an American person, but my dad was absolutely not that. So I think always, in my head, like I just never had this feeling of being particularly American on some level. You know, there was a feeling of like not really understanding um, any kind of sense of like exclusivity of nationhood or something like that. It just, I just think that because of, you know, that accident of my parents' meeting, um, kind of made me uh, immune to this idea that there was something supposed to be relevant or uh, providential of the accident of where you were born, you know? And yeah, yeah, so totally. the song was like talking about, you know, immigration. It was basically about that whole idea of like, what is, what does it mean to be from somewhere? What does it mean for someone to be illegal? Well, yeah, it's, it's first line. All origins are ex accidental, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like right there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and then there was a line about the violence of the fence builder's dream, which it, to me is very, you know, like when you think about, you know, oh, Jesus the Christ. wall and all this stuff, yeah. it's like this idea of like carving out space for yourself and keeping people out and all this stuff. There's just like this idea of home, which has a converse, which is like you're not invited, you know, like so there's this, there's just, there's like something intrinsically violent in the concept of borders that has to be, you know, reckoned with. And that's what the song was about to me. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's fairly obvious, but that's, that's what it, that's what it, that's, I think it's, was an important song for me. I like it. I like where it's at too, because you have break as, uh, as the opener. And then I kind of, you, you get the emotional heft of, of that coming after that. I think that works really well in the, Right brain, left brain, Fugazi <laughs> mindset. Cossack mm. uh, Acrostic. Please tell me about Cossack Acrostic. I think that's an interesting song, and that's I, I kind of grew to enjoy that one even more after hearing the demo version of it, which is 
wildly different. Yeah, I, I have to say I prefer the demo. I think the demo is was is a beautiful piece of music, and I the record version I was was a bit of a struggle for me. So it's like I kind of maybe that's one of those songs where maybe um, we uh, we could have you know stop messing with it and let it be but uh i, I kind of prefer yeah like i said i kind of prefer the demo version but the you know there's something about the yeah the pacing or the the kind of i don't know the spazziness of the album version that is, that is kind of cool too so it's like i don't know um yeah they're, they're way different vibes for sure but I, yeah they're way different vibes <laughs> well and we already and you already mentioned guilt for fall which i think that's another one that Mm-hmm. Like there's an alternate universe version of this record where, yeah, you know, we had an alternate version of the of a, of that record which could have been recorded in the basement of my mom's house, and it would have probably been a really cool record. But I think we just weren't 100 percent sure that it was it was right. But um, uh, but 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 there's also some stuff on that record that you know, like you know, um. Some of the tracks like No Surprise or Floating Boy or some of these other ones that have the, the I don't think that those were ones those ones were improved on, I think, quite a bit by recording them at Dawn's and they they got the space and the shape that they needed. And break, for example, for sure. And um uh recap was massively improved, I think, by doing in the studio and it had a uh, a lot of stuff that just happened within the take live, you know, improvisationally that were good. So I think there's half the you know, certainly a lot of the record I think was improved by by going and, and doing it at Don's, but uh, but there's a few of the ones like yeah, Caustic and maybe Guilford where I feel like we might have might have overcooked it. Interesting. Well, I think you know it's it, it's cool to hear those alternate versions. I mean, if folks want to hear it; they can they can hear them. So that's yeah, that's kind of. I mean, it's sort of like it's like the same sort of thing when they uh, did those uh, Beatles. Uh, what what were they called? Uh, I, I should know this. I worked at a record store and they were doing. Where they had all the alternate takes and stuff. We could hear "Strawberry Fields Forever" take seventeen or whatever. Oh, the, an- the anthology. The anthology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus yeah, Christ, yeah. it's the easiest word in the world. Sorry, man. Yeah. <laughs> but like, like it's if it's it's kind of thing where it's if you're interested in the band, you know, that's like super cool to hear. In the same way that I think anybody who plays music could probably enjoy that, you know, the Beach Boys smile sessions at least once. <laughs> you know where it's like oh wow that's crazy that they that they did that there uh but i think it actually those songs they're still the songs but they kind of hit a little different in, in those other versions and it's uh i think i think that's that's you know that that's it's very cool that you guys eventually did put those out and i think it's kind of cool that it was on the instrument soundtrack because that's that is is is, is that ever is that on streaming i don't even know i've got a, i've got my own copies so i don't really do too much i'm sure i'm sure it is yeah it's probably on youtube or something i'm I'm gonna get emails about this 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 is the thing i'm gonna get emails about key uh well and and uh oh so so okay yeah yeah so the one after this that was the one after this right was the 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 soundtrack where you had the um Mm -hmm. uh that's got the uh the the the, uh ian on the piano song Mm -hmm. and uh, it's got the that version of guilford fall and um the slow cross stick, right? <laughs> I think is yep. what you called it. Like all the was it was there a thought at that point? Because at that point, you know, you didn't really have anything. Not that you had anything improved before, but it's kind of weird to open the curtain. Sometimes, did you have any? Like- well, well, when we decided to do that record after we made the film. I mean, the film idea was Jem had a bunch of footage of us um, that was silent, 
like he'd shot us in Super 8. It had no uh, sound on it. Right. So the original project for the film was he just had some Super 8 live stuff that was silent. So we were, he would just, we would give him like tapes that we had lying around and he would just kind of put them against the films. And we were like, wow, this is kind of cool. This, this, yeah. this works very well. And then that's how the film just built from there. It was like, well, maybe we should try having you come around on a tour and film, or maybe we should have you come around to the studio and film a recording session. And maybe we should have you interview some kids, you know, it was just kind of built like that. Like he would just amass stuff. And then eventually we were like, I think we might, maybe we should make a film with all this stuff. So he started putting it together and we made this film, but we realized, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were using as, music in the film was stuff that we actually were very fond of. Like I'm so tired, the piano song and, uh, which is beautiful. I mean, that's a beautiful song. Like it's, so, I mean, the idea that, I mean, that some would say like, you know, this is an indulgence or whatever, but quite honestly for us, this is the stuff we like the best. We yeah. love, we love the looseness and the, the un, uh, labored aspect of that kind of recording. And, um, to us, it's satisfying. So we thought it was worth putting out. And and so it was not intentional, like, you know, like there's no, you know, there's no great uh, theory behind it, except to say like, this was material that we used in this film. And if you want to hear it, here it, it is. is. And for us, it's a record that I, I find that record much, much easier to listen to in a lot of ways, because it's like, you know, uh, it just has this, it, it, because it, you know, for me, for for me, it just elicits really pleasant memories of of you know a uh, certain kind of recording, you know, a very loose kind of un uh, self conscious way of working. So I find it satisfying. You know, that's that's about the that's about the, that to me that's enough to justify it. Well, I mean, there's that like, you know, it's only like a minute or something, but that shaking all over homage sort of half cover like it's you guys are it sounds like you're a band that enjoys playing to each other and having fun yeah which <laughs> oh yeah by the way they can do that <laughs> which is i mean it, it's great i i think that is uh I, I can't think of another soundtrack remotely like it because of that and i, I think it, it made the which i haven't seen instrument in a very long time but uh i remember that it, it it's been a very interesting way to present the footage that didn't have sound. Yeah. And super cool, uh, super cool stuff. Uh, so, okay. So then leading up to the argument, you got Jerry doing some second drums. Uh, and um, what, what, what's happening with the band at that time? What's what's with, with this record? Uh, also full disclosure, First of all, I haven't shouted out Ian Wright yet for hooking us up of the of the wonderful Fugazi A to Z podcast, mm. and that's the episode that I was on. Was full disclosure, so awesome. And I get to say full disclosure. I was on the episode about full disclosure, which is great. Department <laughs> of Redundancy Department. Uh, but this is um, this is a hell of a record, and, and I think that it, it, some days this is my favorite record from you guys, and it's it's. It's interesting because I think there's a through line through all of it, but then there's some things that are incredibly unexpected there. And I remember at the live shows at the time, uh, Jerry was doing second second drums and percussion with you guys. Uh, which came which came first? Was it like a like a live thing? Did he st was he more involved in the songwriting earlier on? No. What happened was um, 
Brendan and uh, we were like doing demos at the pirate house group house that I lived in in the basement, and mm -hmm. we were we were really into jungle music at that time, and we're with had which had all this uh, kind of really crazy, super fast, complicated. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, rhythm, rhythm shit happening. Yeah, so yeah. we were like, how the fuck can we like you know fuck around with this idea? So we would we were doing this thing of like having him drum and then we would overdub him drumming with himself when we would change the pitch of the tape and we were like so we were stacking multiple drum sets in different uh tape speeds and then layering them you know and and then uh building songs like that and just fucking loving it you know and loving the yeah. sound of brendan playing with himself and loving the way the pitch shifting of the tape did what it did to the drums and just you know we were just fucking around and really enjoying it and demoing songs that way. And then sometimes using a drum machine and then just, you know, we we're just trying to find new shit. And um, some of those things became songs, but then we realized, okay, how are we going to do this live? Like we, we recorded uh, some of it. Uh, I think closed caption maybe on end hits was the first time we did it. And this was Brendan overdubbing on top of himself. Yeah. So then yeah. Doing multiple it, tracks. Sure. Yeah. 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 So then we were like, shit, how are we going to do some of this stuff live? So then we were, we were like, touring with a drummer who was our roadie and we were like well we have this guy with us who already plays the drums what if we just gave him a small kit and we can kind of start trying to recreate these uh ideas that we were doing in the studio and so we did that and then eventually we started thinking of like you know just finding other songs that might benefit from him doing some other thing like oh burning might be cool with two drums so we would have him play on that or like oh maybe we would be cool to hear him play you know he plays the trumpet why don't we have him play a trumpet instead of this overdub you know that yeah. was this keyboard why don't we have him play it on trumpet? you know it's just like finding other ways to pull stuff off live and um so we didn't want to have it be the whole show because you know we didn't we some songs are just one drum set songs and uh but the ones that were double drums we wanted to be able to pull off and we thought they like number five and there was a bunch of songs that ended up being part of that repertoire of two drum stuff um so when we went in to do the argument we we wrote the record the, as the four of us went in the studio and then realized that we really wanted to open up the process to have other people come in and, and be on the record. When the band first started, the kind of open door policy was something that was really, really important to Ian. And then in fact, kind of led to my being in the group was this idea like, oh, you know, there's, you know, this may be a core band, but there should also be room for other people to come in. So when the band first started, people would come on stage and do all kinds of stuff with the group. And then, uh, then once the band became a touring band, we kind of shut the door a little bit because we had to like define the group in a way. And it was no longer really made sense to do it that way. But at the, in the argument, I think we felt comfortable kind of inviting other people in. So we invited Amy Dominguez to play cello with us. We invited, uh, Kathy, my wife Kathy and uh, so Bridget, Bridget Cross to come in and sing some vocals with us. Yeah. We had um, and then Jerry, of course, to come in and play percussion and drums on a bunch of this stuff. Um, and we had him uh, do all kinds of stuff on that record. And we invented a way for Brendan and him to be able to see each other while they were playing yeah. using mirrors. You know, so yeah. we had this mirror set up so they could like be in visual contact with each other, even though we had the drums in a slightly, you know, separate serrated space. So 
it was cool and and i think it was really um that record feels very much like the band to me but i think it's cool that we were able to bring in um friends and you know have people do stuff and have different sounds and voices and things going on within what i think it was very you know much the, still the the band sound or whatever but uh it was it was really fun it was a really cool cool way to do it yeah there's there's not a lot of records where bands pull that off in that way i mean i think unwound did it with the uh, leaves turn inside you uh, mm-hmm. as well but great record amazing yep. yeah but it, it's to like still keep the core of what you're doing so um, burning hot and sacrosanct, but then to like add in other things to sort of take a new and unexpected directions. It's a uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. And I think it, I think honestly, it is one of it's probably the record I listen to most of you guys these days for whatever that's worth. Um, and I think it's it, there's there's so, there's such a density to it. Like it's just, it rewards a lot of uh multiple listens and things along those lines uh you- yeah i mean i think it was a really for as much as i think we we uh you know writing the songs and getting to that point it took a while but i mean I, I, the session itself was really uh it was really it really felt it really felt pretty pretty smooth you know and it really felt uh i think at that point I was really loving the studio, you know, and really feeling uh, like really, really just really wanting to, you know, find sounds and do different things. And, you know, like, I'm going to try this electric banjo. I'm going to, you know, just wanting to try lots of different uh, kinds of moves you know like i'm gonna put a wawa pedal on the drum set you know shit like that and just yeah. like finding ways to make it work and not just be like some ridiculous novelty garbage you know but just like finding you know <laughs> sure yeah something yeah. <laughs> something that had made sonic sense within the song you know like you know live we famously didn't really use effects or anything like that fundamentally yeah. like it's just a very simple setup but in terms of the records, like we wanted to be able to like recreate the song, like that there's an idea there, but we wanted it to have like a dimension, you know, a dimension to it that was. We wanted the studio to start feeling like it was another member of the group, as opposed to just like this like clinical thing that we had to undergo, like a dentist appointment. You know, that was like so. <laughs> totally, no, no, no. I get that. That's real. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I mean, and. Like, look, there's a venue that's fantastic that's called Night Shop. There's a band that's fantastic that's called Strange Light. I mean, I think this record like touched a lot of folks. There. Oh, I didn't know about either of those. That's cool. They're both great. <laughs> they're both All right. re- but they're both really good. Um, yeah. Full. Uh, so okay. I don't. Full disclosure. I don't remember what I said on that episode. <laughs> Like at all, but I'm curious. Can you tell me about full disclosure as a song? Like where where you were coming at with that one specifically? Because I want to see how far off I was. Um, sure. I'm getting tired, dude. We're gonna have to. Yeah, yeah. I know. This, I gotta, I, this, I, this I, is this. I might get to school in the morning, but I will say. Um, let's see. With that song. This this is for Ian as much as it is for me. Right, Ian. Right. Oh, he's a very good dude, and <laughs> he if he's listening, I would like to send him my regards and uh what an incredible him, project thank man. him for his service yeah he's like he's a very good dude um uh what, do, what can i say about this song 
Well, you know, what I love about this song, what I find really interesting about this song and what I, I think I tried to pull off what we tried to pull off or whatever with it. It's like, there's an extremity in like a, the rawness of the verse and the sweetness of the chorus were yeah, like yeah. something that I, it's like, I find hilarious to me in a way. Like, I just think it's, and, and I remember at the ending of the song, I just want, I, you know, it's one of those things where you just wanted to keep, there just was like, there was something kind of like a, extremity to it that i wanted to actually try to achieve and i kept feeling like i was not getting it you know i was like i want it to be like even more fucked up or even more like this or that or whatever but by the end of it you know like uh that was the one where i ended up using this electric banjo that i had found where it's just like a banjo neck shoved into a guitar body and had used it oh, wow. just made just to get because i just the guitar could not get shrieky enough for me i was like there's got to be some other sound that's gnarlier than that you know like how can i get even like you know even more like abrasive and high you know and and it turned out to be that thing um but also you know the vocals with having the backing vocals there's just this like this like kind of like uh there's a weird polarity inside the song that is that i that i think is what's cool that wanted to try to pull off in there and you know um in a way the song is really to me was just about almost about the underground or about punk rock or about music in general or about finding something that can like obliterate you and transport you someplace in a way that like basically saves your life or whatever and that's what the song was, you know, as a, as an idea was to me, was just to talk about that, like that kind of um, obliterating, uh, life-saving aspect to, I guess, art, you know, or like a certain kind of art that like, that operates that way for you. I mean, the thing I was thinking a lot about um, was, you know, when I was a kid, like, you know, there was some music that was just like the music that surrounded you. Like, you know, you'd be in your mother's, like my mom would be driving me around in her Maverick, her car. And then, you know, a song like the most beautiful girl in the world would come on the radio or the night Chicago died or, um, you know, whatever the songs of the day were, you know, and those would just be kind of like this like fabric. And then there was this other music that made this demand on you that, Mm. and for me, that was the Beatles. The Beatles hearing them when I was really young, I just felt like there was a question or a demand that was being made on me. And that demand and that question was like heightened by about a billion fold when punk rock happened. When I was like, when I heard punk rock when I was like 12 years old or whatever, it didn't feel like, oh, I'm just finding some music. Like now I think there's something about the technology of the moment where I feel like people select music. Whereas when I was a kid, I felt like music selected me. You know, and I felt like punk rock selected me in this way. It was like basically like it was almost like, you know, that kind of sense of like I I wasn't really raised in any kind of religious sense. So it almost like took the place of like a secular religion for me. Like it was like that demanding and that like obliterating. It was basically like this is this is, you know you know, you've just been drafted into this fucking thing and now you've got to fucking, you know, 
you've got to hold it up. And that, so that's the way that experience was for me. I really, really felt called to this thing when I got into punk music. And and it was, and so in a way, that's the what full disclosure is to me. You know, it's about that feeling and and how transformative that was for me. Love that. Well, I got I got somewhat close. <laughs> the, the, I, and also, uh, can I just say that I love, to me, like the chorus, it's almost like a, you know, Ronnie Spector or something like like the like the the ooze and the love it, and I and I love the the contrast between the, the verse and the. I love Kathy's voice and I love Bridget's voice and they were in a band together at that time and I would drum for them and I just I've always like I really I just heard their voices you know and the same thing with in Life and Limb with Bridget's voice and that like I I really really. Uh, uh, I just, I just don't know. It was like, it was, I just was in my head as a, as a thing. And I just, uh, I'd done, I'd been, I'd played with Bridget in a couple of different projects and stuff like that. And it's just, she was just someone that really affected me. And obviously Bikini Kill was a band that had enormous impact on our band and yeah. on me personally. And uh, so having them on there was, was really, really nice. Anything you can share with us about uh, recording of the argument that uh, springs to mind before I let you go? Um, let's think. Um, no, you know, it's just I just feel like um, what I think is strange is like I really feel like that. It, I really like for me like of the like I really am proud of Red Medicine. I'm also really really proud of the argument, and um, it's I I feel like I feel very like sometimes I listen to stuff and I'm like I hear the seams or I hear like stuff that I that I wish we had done slightly differently or like performance stuff with the way I'm singing or something like that. But with the argument, it's like in a way for that to have been our last record feels okay for me because I kind of felt like, okay, well, we actually tried to do, it's like, I didn't feel like we were aiming anywhere that we couldn't go or whatever. I felt like we actually kind of did what we were trying to do yeah. in a way. Um, whether or not people think it's the best record or the worst record, I don't know about any of that. And I don't know, I'm not saying any of the records are necessarily better or worse than the others. It's just like, for me, there's a I feel comfortable with what we were trying to do and where it landed. You know, it's like, for me, I feel satisfied. Um, so uh, it's peculiar. I think it is in a way weird for us because I think we made the record and uh, I, it's, it's peculiar that we didn't make another one and yeah. that things kind of like the wheels all fell off after that, because it does not the kind of record where you listen to it and it feels sound, it doesn't sound to me like the wheels are falling off the whole thing, but um, no, not at uh, all. <laughs> Far from it, yeah. Yeah, so it's weird, but um, we had I, you know, I just I love uh, I love uh, yeah. I don't, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like uh, we had um, we we had a good we had a good rapport on that session, I think, and everybody was. Uh, it's so funny because like when you have a when you when you work with people for a really long period of time and you kind of develop uh it's interesting the way you can kind of develop 
you almost have a blind spot sometimes to what you're doing, you know, it's because it's just mm. like what you're doing. But then like I, I feel like when we were making that record, it was like everybody was very conscious of what everybody was bringing to it. You know, it's like there was a sense of like every, it felt, you know, very um, I can just feel everybody's personality you know i can feel joe i can feel brendan i can feel ian i can feel jerry i can feel the community you know what i mean it's like i can yeah. feel don i can feel the space in it um so in that sense uh i feel i feel pretty good about it as being the last record because i feel like it really uh, it, it 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 has all the facets there and it was I don't know. I mean, it's and you know, the the longer that the band hasn't you know played or what you know, we, you know, we're certainly always in touch with each other, and you know, it's it's a it's an intense relationship that remains to this day. But, um, yeah, the more time goes by, you know, I just you, you just have a lot of uh, like when you're working on something, sometimes it's like you can't see it, but like it's like I can definitely when I think about that record, it's like I feel like I can see it, you know. No, I get that. And I think that comes through, and it's uh, like I said, it's probably the one I listen to the most for whatever that's worth. Cool, I'm glad. Gee, you've been so remarkably giving of your time, and I I, I thank you for that. Um, this has been great. Thank you for spending. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't sure. I didn't know this is what you wanted to do. So I hope this is what you wanted to no, do. No, this is this is this is <laughs> man, this is this is all this in a bag of chips, as they say, man. This is this is mm-hmm. great. Uh, it, it's 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 been wonderful talking to you, and uh, I thank you so much. Uh, last thing that I do on the show, this is the can question. It's the only question I ever ask. It's a can question. And uh, you can choose to interpret it however you like. Why do is you do it, what you it's do? It's about the band Can? No, <laughs> it's about Tago Mago. Yeah. Because I, I would love to talk about Can. <laughs> another time, another time. Okay. Uh, the, the question is, why do you do what you do? Um, why do I do what I do? Well, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what I do. So I don't have any answer for you because I don't actually know what I'm doing. I've, I feel like I've, I am a, I have, uh, so much of life is serendipity and randomness. And that has certainly been that way for me. I never had an intention for myself. I never saw myself, uh, as a musician really. And somehow I've been involved in music almost every day of my adult life and even my non-adult life, you know? So it's like one of those things, like, I don't know um, why I do what I do and I don't know why it's happening, frankly, (laughs) but I find it, I, you know, it's like one of those things, like I've never been a very uh, directed human being, you know, it's kind of like I get blown around a little bit and, um, and uh, I'm just happy, you know, to, if, when I can find, people that that i line up with in order to 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 work on things that are important to me and they're not always musical but um you know right now for example like i've been working with this benzai lewis white for the last uh i don't know decade or something like that i can't even remember how long we've made a like five records together we have another one coming out um soon on the drag city label and uh, as a producer and an arranger with them like you know it's jim white from the band dirty three oh, who's so great he's so great yeah yeah i mean he's you know i mean i've just been very very lucky to find people throughout my life who have you know kind of i've been able to kind of continue a uh a, a conversation with and and like meeting jim and playing music with him you know sometimes we've made music together where i play guitar sometimes i'm producing records for him um, and with in this band, Yorgos Zyluris, who's a, a master lute player from Crete, and they have this duo, and we've been uh, 
it's just been you know it's it's been an as incredibly uh, impactful for me as 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 almost anything else I've ever worked on. So I just feel like I've been really lucky. I've kind of, things have like I've been open to stuff, and I've been really lucky. And you know, we talked mostly about Fugazi today, but I worked with. Vic Chesnut in a way, in a relationship with him, making a couple of records that was as profound for me as almost anything I've ever done in my life. And I think he's one of the greatest American songwriters that ever lived. And I recommend to people that they examine his incredibly deep and long catalog, which is, you know, he's worked with bands like Lamb Chop and Jonathan Richmond, and he has all these different iterations of what he does and some stuff where it's just him alone and some stuff where he plays in big groups like he did with me and the members of Silver Mount Zion and other people from Montreal. And I just think his is a very, very interesting musical journey and he was a hero to me. So, uh, and well, I, um, I had that down to talk about and I completely forgot about it. So my bad, no, but, no problem, but we'll, I'm we'll talking about like, it another time. <laughs> and you know, there's a, I worked on this record that just came out right now by the casual dots, which is my wife's band with, uh, Christina Blot and Steve door. And I, you know, again, it's like one of these records that we've been working on it for literally 18 years and it's finally come out. And it's like, uh, really important to me so it's like i'm just it's just like one of those weird things like why i do what i do i don't know i'm like you know i don't because again like i said i don't really know what it is that i do like for a long time i thought of myself as a person who was in a band and i thought that would just be my reality forever and then it has not been my reality you know a lot of the time i'm working on uh producing stuff and working on other kinds of projects film projects other kinds of things um there's a randomness to everything and sometimes there's long fallow periods and things are really fucking difficult and I don't have a sense of what I'm fucking doing with my life and where I feel like uh, politically drained and despondent and, you know, like just like anybody else. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm a person who is, uh, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm a person who has an answer to literally almost anything, (laughs) but I have been, uh, I've been really, really blessed by the people around me, you know, and to be in communities and rooms with people who are super fucking inspiring to me. And from, you know, in the same way I was talking about that song, Full Disclosure, I feel like that was the thing that kind of rescued my life was finding uh, finding a community of, of you know, of uh, people that we're, you know, pushing forward and whatever, whatever it is that I'm doing is, is, is really only informed by that, by that openness to the, you know, to be involved in that community and for that community to be open to me. I love that. And thank you so much for spending so much time with me, man. I, I really appreciate it. Sure. I hope it worked out. I hope we didn't, we went where you needed to go and I uh, send you my best. <laughs> uh, be safe. And thank you so much, man. Take care. All right, brother. Oh, oh, there he goes. Keep it Shoto. What a cool guy, man. Like uh, that. That was. Uh, I hope you guys. I hope you guys dug that. That went considerably longer than I expected to, and we still didn't get to everything. So, uh, yeah, man. Uh, hope y'all enjoyed that. Here's some Fugazi to play us out.
That's right. That's right. A little glue man for you. Oh, a little glue man for you coming at you. Before that, full disclosure, a little band called uh, Checks Notes. Fugazi? Fugazi. Fugazi out of D.C. I really hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, even a quarter as much as I did. Uh, what a cool guy. There's nothing more to say than that. Uh, yeah. Uh, we There's a whole bunch of stuff we didn't even get to, but uh, I feel very good about what we did get to. Hey, thanks so much. You've been listening to Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you very much for listening to it. The show airs Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific, on Radio Nope, RadioNope.com, streaming on Twitch, streaming on YouTube, all those things. You can find all the archives, always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. Fugazi style. At ProtonicReversal.com. If you do like the show and want to get episodes sooner and or support the show, patreon.com slash Reversal. One dollar a month will achieve that goal. And so much more. So much more. Uh, thanks, everyone, for sharing the episodes around like this one. And, uh, you know, leaving reviews is corndog like as that might seem yeah, helps people find the show and it's, uh, it's a darn nice thing to do more Kona Neutron and the Secret Friends touring coming up some select East Coast dates coming up and uh, yeah there's some, there's some cool stuff for the show coming after that so thanks for folks who have taken interest in the music as well you can find it on your better internets Detroit, Philadelphia, Peekskill, New Haven, Pittsburgh, and Milwaukee, strangely enough, where I live. Uh, let's see, anything else? No? Um, I think that's it. You know, just remember to, if you do, if you do like the uh, show, or just this episode, you know, share it along. That's it. And keep it showed as awesome. Stay safe out there. Check you later. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day,
just was, there was always just a lot of... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What's up, what 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 <laughs> Okay, wow, okay. I, I don't know why we turned to a dub record for a second. Sorry about that. 